Greetings from the north, and welcome to Forum Borealis and a new program in our sixth series called Exploring Esoteric Philosophy. Today we have back our regular guest Joseph Patrick Farrell. He is the definition of a Renaissance man, commanding a large number of subjects and today we will finally hear from him on matters which is covered by his formal education. His PhD in patristics is from Oxford University. He's a former professor and a noteworthy documents researcher with an incredible ability to perceive new angles from old expositions, delving into all sorts of primary sources. On the artistic side, he plays cembalo and composes classical music in the Baroque style of Bach. When it comes to books, he's like a German factory. So far, he's written 33 in less than 20 years. You will find a biography and his full bibliography at our website with links to his own online presence, including his membership site called Giza Death Star from one of his early books. Now, today we have him on to discuss a subtle and profound matter that is permeating many of his books, but that he's really interviewed about, and that we may refer to as the topological metaphor. It attempts to decode and describe nothing less than the cosmic structure, in line with the accounts of the ancient traditions from all corners of our world. It is described in many different ways and related with different symbolism and myths, but always pointing to the same essential principles, of which numbers are probably its purest expression. You do not need much knowledge of philosophy, esotericism, symbolism, or math, etc., to grasp the discussion. All you need is an open mind and an open heart, and you will comprehend your own angle from it, like we all do. The matter is objective, but the perception of it, the grasping of it, is necessarily subjective. Bon appétit. Welcome back to the forum, Joseph. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> yeah, really looking forward to our little conversation today, because we're taking a break from our usual topics, and today you'll get to apply your original education. <laughs> because maybe how much however much of it i can remember <laughs> <laughs> whatever they managed to beat into you yeah that's right <laughs> so, so today i was thinking about free philosophizing okay uh, because it is a fact that like everyone says about you you're a very prolific writer you, you write very fast I, I can hardly keep up with you as a reader actually but you also have this, when we observe you as an author, there is this phenomenon 
that I mentioned that you handle very many different subjects. And many people do this, but you handle it with depth precision. Uh, and this too makes you stand out. And one of those approaches or aspects to your authorship that people appreciate that hasn't been, I think, enough explored mm-hmm. in interviews is the philosophical side, because it's right. right up there with people who only write about these things. And by the way, I, I have to confess that, and this is just a personal choice, it's nothing to do with religion or morals or anything, but I, I, I'm a very straight-edge guy. I like right. keeping myself healthy and clear in mind, and so I, I very rarely become tipsy. Right. But yesterday, I was lured out with some friends, so I, I'm having a little groggy head today. So I, <laughs> it's quite a challenge for me to have this conversation with you, but I'll try. <laughs> Uh, I was thinking uh, to explore some of the philosophical stratus that is lurking in many of your books, mm-hmm. uh, which will help people, I think, understand, appreciate many of your topics if they, if they get this deeper thing. And so let's just start with a so-called topological metaphor. Okay. I've heard you beautifully explain this to, to George Anne, and, and she's known, she was no nonsense. She forced you to explain it as simply as possible. Mm-hmm. And I've always been an adherent to the saying that if you can't explain something simply, mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. not really, really understood it in its core. Mm-hmm. I have uh, subscribed to both the notions that you should have as simple language as possible. Not unnecessary to cloak it with exotic uh, terms, but also that you should have as precise language as possible. Right. Because uh, when we get to these more etherical topics, to the more abstract thinking, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can't detach language from no. realization. Those two things, as you know, are deeply integrated. So a precise but simple language is the ultimate ideal. Mm-hmm. So let's try then. Uh, the topological metaphor, how would you put it to us? Well, unfortunately, the topological metaphor is a is an abstraction of an abstraction. Um, <laughs> it, there is no way to put it simply. People grapple with it, but let's approach it historically as, as to why I came up with this idea. Mm. If you If you look at medieval debates, for example of God and space, you'll find something very peculiar, something very, very interesting. And this goes all the way back into the classical philosophers, Plato, the Neoplatonists, and so on. Yeah, fortunately, I'm a bit educated there. So, so uh, yeah. Well, it even, goes, it even goes into systems of Eastern religion, you know, um, Taoism, Hinduism, and so on. There, this, this metaphor is quite literally a metaphor. You find it everywhere you turn once you are able to train your eyes to look for it. But perhaps the easiest way for a Western audience is to approach it through what begins to happen in the Middle Ages when this is first starting to be realized. And by realized, I mean consciously looked at rather than uh, something so obvious it's taken for granted. Um, or uh, carried by underground groups like Templars. Or carried by underground groups, right, exactly. Uh, which I think happened in the West. Um, I think it was carried for a very long time by under underground groups. Mm. But if you look at the medieval debates about God, about space, 
you'll discover the very interesting thing that the language being used, the technical language being used, is often the very same. Let's give an example. When you look at medieval scholastic philosophy, for example, God will be described as ubiquitous or omnipresent. And if you turn to the same philosophers, oftentimes, you'll see them using the same language of space. Can you think of anywhere where space is not? <laughs> okay, so in other words, the conception itself is omnipresent, it's ubiquitous. So they begin to notice that the language for God and the language for space is oftentimes the very same. Hmm. Let's give another example. Uh, God is oftentimes described as incorporeal or immaterial. Well, space, when you stop and think about it, is in, in those terms, incorporeal or immaterial. Mm. And then the real, the real breakout for this concept is that when you start looking at the descriptions of the, the idea of creation ex nihilo, creation literally out of nothing, all right? Mm. It's when you look at that term nothing or no thing that you really begin to see this metaphor break out in a major way because if you look at the, the medieval scholastics as they're talking about God, they will always caution and say that when we're talking about God, we're using analogy, all right, yeah. and that ultimately God is is a non-intelligible entity. That is to say, that He's a no thing. There's no category of thought or conception that totally encompasses. So the same thing they notice also begins to happen with space. It's a no thing, and before creation, what do you have? Well, you have a no thing. And let's bring it forward a little bit more. Let's bring it more into the modern age with, with uh, modern physics and the idea of a Big Bang. Well, what's there before the Big Bang? Well, nothing, no thing. And this is where it really begins to break out because… Hang on. You're saying that in the medieval ages is when uh, it's starting to become a, a conscious topic. It, right. it, do you see this in relation to the concept of zero being reintroduced to Europe about the same time? I'm thinking of this famous, in the Renaissance at least, this famous yes. Italian. Because with the concept of zero and… Mm -hmm. uh, depth or, or negative values, right. they right. open up for a practical understanding of this oh, yes. no thing. So yeah. is, is there a correlation there? Oh yes, I think so, absolutely. Mm. Um, but the idea of, of a zero is not even itself quite close enough to this no thing. Um, mathematics has a, has a wonderful symbol, which I've used to express this metaphor, and that's called the empty hyperset. In other words, it's a, it's a set containing no members but all functions. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's okay. about the simplest way to put it. But when you when you look at it this way, when you look at physics, physics, natural philosophy, as they called it back then, could not talk about nothing. In other words, you you had to have something observable in order to describe motion in space. Yeah, what about a vacuum? Yeah, well, that's exactly it. The vacuum, what's the vacuum? Well, it's another nothing. It's another no thing mm. that differentiates itself. And that's the key word here. Yeah. 
because when you go back to ancient systems, uh, you have, of course, within Christianity and Judaism, uh, the idea of creation ex nihilo. You go back to ancient Egypt, you get very much the same idea of an all-pervasive no thing, which undergoes differentiation. And out of that process of differentiation, everything is created. So, in other words, this this idea of a creation out of no thing or nothing isn't really unique to to the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's pretty much everywhere if you if you know how to look for it. But now, this is a key thing here because let's imagine that we have a a an infinitely extended sameness. Mm-hmm. With that infinitely extended sameness, you you have a nothing. You you can't latch on to anything. All right. Mm. But let's say now, just imagine that you draw a line or a plane, that you cleave it, that you cut it, that you you slice it, or to use the the mathematical term, that you differentiate it. Immediately, when you've done this, you've created three nothings. Not two, three, mm. because you've got one region of nothing that's distinct from the other region of nothing, and then you've got the common surface between the two, which is still a nothing, <laughs> okay? Yeah, yeah. So, but, but now what's, what's very interesting is you've added information to this system. And so every time you perform this differentiation, you can do it any number of times. What is interesting is if you symbolize this process – uh, with with a kind of uh, quasi-topological or pseudo-topological mathematical notation. What you'll discover is something very odd, something uniquely interesting and, and to me very exciting. Mm-hmm. And that is that the initial empty hyperset that you are performing this differentiation upon remains in every single formal description of every single derivative that you can deduce or derive from that like process. holographic uh, principle yes exactly it's, mm. it's always there but the surrounding information content will vary now what does this mean well it means very basically that you've you've symbolized the process of analogy because what's analogy? Analogy is the way we human beings learn. We learn from a familiar context by noticing parallel concepts, structures, forms, and so on and so forth mm. from one context to another context. So you've set up also a process of what mathematicians call mapping, and you're noticing the continuities and discontinuities between topological regions, or we could also say academic disciplines, you know, uh, what does the rhetorical trophy of, of, let's say, a, a reversal look like in music? Does, is there such a thing in music? Well, yeah, there is. Uh, is there such a thing in literature? Well, yeah, there is. You know, what you're setting up, in other words, is you're setting up the process of analogy itself, And what the metaphor is really telling you then is that it is possible that reality itself, that the underlying medium of the physical world that we think is all that's there is ultimately analogical in nature and therefore an operation of of intelligence that you can can look at this 
so to speak, as kind of a, a, topologic, a, a topological approach to, to intelligent design with a key codicil that this is also kind of a self-organizing process. So it has, it has huge implications for philosophical metaphysics because you can't pigeonhole this process into, let's say, pantheism or monotheism or panentheism or polytheism or, you know, any of the isms that classical philosophical metaphysics deals with because it looks like and has features of all of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of an acid drip on all of these things. Now, the other interesting thing about this is once once you see this metaphor unfolding, then you can start to look at philosophical texts themselves, or yeah. for that matter, hermetic texts or, or mythological texts and so on, and see behind the language to the structure of the metaphor that's present in it. Exactly. And once you've taken that step, once you realize that this is all expressible as a, uh, a symbolic language it allows you to go merrily dancing and skipping from one context <laughs> to another. And to do so, once you understand the process and, and have learned uh, the little simple rules of how it works, it enables you to do so uh, deftly. Uh, in other words, your, your analogies don't have the quality of being inept, but they have the quality of being quite apt once you mm-hmm. see how the process works. So, you know, I've, I've attempted to model this in various books, but, I, you know, I tell people that every book that I have written, the reason why I tell people that every book dovetails intentionally into every other book is because that's quite true, because I'm using this process to write them. Wow. So, yeah. Really? I, so, so this yeah, is a yes. template for how you're writing them? Yes, this is a template for wow. exactly how I'm writing the books, why I'm writing them in a certain sequence, yeah. uh, why I make deliberate reference from one to the other that may seem like the contexts are totally unrelated. Mm. Uh, but no, they, they are very deliberately laid out according to what I've, what I've tried to learn about this metaphor over many, many years of looking at it. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll call it a natural system. Yeah, it's very natural. It's, you're because imitating it's, nature. You're, you're imitating nature. You're imitating the way the human mind works. Mm. Uh, both, and I should caution people: this this is true both of of an individual observer and of group observers. Although it it's very interesting when you look at the group process when it's doing this type of thing. It it arrives at analogies in the derivative system that are of a much higher order than an individual. And what do I mean by that? Well. It's very simple. We lift each other. Is there resonance going on? Yeah, yeah. Sort. It's a sort of resonance. A resonance again is is a kind of analogy because you've got a fundamental. Let's say a certain structure or form that appears in one context, and then let's say you're an individual that's particularly adept at looking at these kinds of things, and then you notice the same structure in a very different sort of context, and then, oh, well, then there's a third appearance of it over here in this third context. Mm. Well, what happens in the process of analogy, if you, if you look at it very carefully, 
if you start at one context and map to another context or, or notice the same thing in another context, what happens is, is very interesting. You lose a certain amount of meaning from the context you're moving from, but you're gaining a certain amount of meaning from the context that you're going to. All right. Mm-hmm. Very simple. It's it's a, it's an obvious sort of process. Think of translating a book from one language to another. Well, you're going to lose a certain amount of meaning that's present in the original language, but you're also what most people don't get is they're going to pick up a certain amount of meaning from the language they're going yeah. into. <laughs> I've experienced this. Yeah, because I translated a lot of stuff. Sure. Yeah, and, and I translated that- stuff which is supposed to convey deeper stratos. And it's exactly uh, right. when it comes to these things that you have a whole new universe. If exactly. you adapt in the translation, you can actually reconnect with stuff that wasn't in the original text, yes, but exactly. was a parallel right. in that culture, in that language. Right, exactly. This this is something that anybody that's worked on translations will know quite well. Well, what I'm saying and suggesting is that this is true of all movements between any context and another context. You right. lose a certain amount of meaning, you gain a certain amount Not of meaning. Not just languages, but Not any expression, any, any approach. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> let's say this individual has done this through X number of contexts. Well, the interesting thing is at the end of the process, his analogy is going to look nothing like what he started with. Okay, mm. it's going to look very different because he's tracked it linearly through several different contexts. Now, let's take a group of several people, each of them looking at maybe one or two contexts and then pooling their observations. Now, they, in doing so, they may get to the same place that the individual does at the end of the process, but as a result of the group doing it, it's going to be a higher order derivative. In other words, in in the in the in the mathematical expression of it, it's going to be a stronger analogy, let's put it that way, Mm. than an individual looking at it. So there's actually a group uh, effect here, uh, what I've said many times is a kind of a a group multiplier effect Hmm. that occurs. So it's, you know, it's it's not true in all cases, but that's just kind of a simplistic uh, illustration of this. But the fact remains that if you're starting from this initial no thing, that in each and every stage of the process, that initial no thing remains as part of the formal description of the process. And when you look at it very carefully, um, what distinguishes, uh, I'll kind of tease the listeners here, because what distinguishes, in my thinking, analogical from logical deduction from induction is simply the way that this is notated symbolically. In other words, each of those three very different types of of human reasoning processes has basically the same formal structure as part of its description. What is different in each case is where that original null context or empty hyperset actually appears in the notation. Mm. So what it also is is suggesting is that there is an ultimate, uh, if you will, similarity of form between supposedly these three 
supposedly discrete types of thought. These three beings, logical and inductive and deductive, right? Being deductive, inductive, and analogical. Analogical. Analogical simply means a direct mapping from a specific context to another context. Yeah, like like a metaphor. Yeah. Like a metaphor, exactly. Mm. So, yeah, these things, uh, it, it's fascinating stuff, you know. And that's I, the most intuitive, by the way. It is the most intuitive, mm. yes, it is. Because there's, um, there is this innate ability that I think all humans have. And this is why, you know, I think it was good to start out with education. Because good education trains the mind how to recognize these things. And there's another thing that we need to be aware of. You know, Noam Chomsky, the the famous linguist, Mm. uh, had the idea of innate grammatical competence. We're all born with the capacity to learn languages Mm. because ultimately all languages have very, very similar elements. I think this Uh, is scientifically confirmed now, by the way. Yeah, it is. Mm. It is. But what's more interesting, as far as I'm concerned, is I think we, using Chomsky's idea, I think we are all born with an innate analogical competence, mm-hmm. all right? And the reason why I think that is because if you look at human beings, when we're talking with each other, for example, we'll get into a discussion where someone makes an analogy, and what immediately ensues? Well, someone will say, well, I don't... I don't agree your analogy doesn't hold because of such and such. It's, mm. it, in other words, we all have a sense of what an inept analogy is, a clumsy one. Yeah. Um, but we all, by the same token, have a sense of what constitutes a good analogy. Mm-hmm. Now, the real trick is, can that be formally specified? Can we turn the light of reason to look at that question more closely and see if there is something that distinguishes an apt from an like a pattern. Yeah, like a yeah, a method. Yeah, a method exactly. Mm. So again, this this metaphor idea, I think, uh, kind of hints at that possibility as well. So it's a very it's a very uh, long way to go around Harvey's barn, but it's it's a very powerful tool. Yeah. Once you've perceived what it is, uh, the difficulty most people have is is being able to clear away the informal technical jargon and looking at the symbolism itself and seeing that it's really symbolizing an underlying structure behind a lot of these things. Mm. Um, I think previously we've talked in some of your interviews about the fact that I think that Three very famous mathematicians were getting very close to recognizing this. Have we talked about Newton and Descartes and Leibniz in this uh, respect? I've heard you talk with uh, Georgian about it, though. So, yeah. Well, let me let me read you some quotations here. I want I want you to listen to these very very carefully. Okay. All right, yep. because these are the indicators. This is from a little book of mine that I and uh, Scott DeHart wrote called Talk Radio for the Eyes, Transhumanism and Dialogue, because we got a lot of questions from people uh, about the transhumanism. Yeah, I've noticed that little, uh, sly little book that uh, has uh, come out there under the radar. Yeah, I noticed (laughs) it the other day. Yeah, it's an interesting book. Well, now listen to this. This is an actual quotation, and I'll read it, and then I'll tell you who said it. But listen carefully to what this person is actually saying. You'll recognize who it is uh, once I say the name right away. Okay. Quote, we see 
that the old geometers have made a use of a kind of analysis which they extended to the solution of all problems, albeit they have hidden it from posterity. Uh-huh. I well realize that they must have known a kind of mathematics that was very different from today's common one. Mm. Not that I think they knew it perfectly. And indeed, some traces of this true mathematics seem to me still to appear in Pappas at Diopontagus, uh, who, though not belonging to the most ancient ages, lived many centuries before our times. I would also think that later on it was suppressed by its very authors because of a certain wicked slyness, unquote. Hmm. Now, guess who, guess who that was? Um, Newton? No, that was Descartes. That was Descartes. But bo- both of them were aware of the ancient... Uh, well, uh, hang on. What, yep. Descartes is, what Descartes has just said, now let's remember who Descartes is. This is the guy that has invented analytical geometry, basically laid the foundations for linear algebra, all right? Mm-hmm. And what he's telling you is, oh, I'm reading these ancient mathematicians, and I think they had a form of analysis that is lost to us. Oh, yeah, I agree. And that has been suppressed, <laughs> okay? Oh, yeah, even suppressed. So it's not even just suppressed. that it's lost, but they don't it's want suppressed. us to know about it. Exactly. Yeah. Now, here's another quotation. Quote, to be sure, the ancient's method is more elegant by far than the Cartesian one, for Descartes achieved the result by an algebraic calculus which transfused into words following the practice of the ancients in their writings would prove to be so tedious and entangled as to provoke nausea, nor might it be understood. <laughs> but they accomplished it by certain simple propositions, judging that nothing written in a different style was worthy to be read, and in consequence, concealing the analysis by which they found their construction. Unquote. Now, guess who that was? Right. So it was Newton and... That was Newton. That was Newton, okay. Yeah. That was Newton. Mm. And again, what's he saying? Well, if you look at these ancient mathematicians, they've got some form of analysis which they've concealed from us. Yeah, so he agreed. Yeah, yeah. And this is, you know, this is one of the inventors of the calculus here, folks. Yeah. All right, now here's the whopper. This is the one, I think, that really came very close to recognizing what what I've been calling topological metaphor. He says, quote, The ancients seem to have recognized and possessed such an analysis proper to geometry, for in their works I think I can make out some vestiges of it. Namely, listen carefully, namely of an algebra in which numbers are not the issue. Certainly it is by this art that they unfolded those propositions, otherwise we would not have had them for such a long time, Mm. which only with difficulty would we find by using our modern methods. I think I've attained and discovered the foundation and first liniments of this art with which we can obtain everything else by an imitation of calculating and with no need to follow the lines with our imagination, a result which I am not sure the ancients ever attained, unquote. Now, guess who that was? That was Leibniz, the other inventor of the calculus. Yeah. So, in other words, he's telling you something even beyond what Descartes and Newton are telling you. You can use the mathematical language for other yes. uh, areas than maths. Exactly. He's saying that there is a symbolic way. Yeah. There is a way of symbolizing pure analysis and in fact Leibniz actually in his writings if you if you really dig into him mm. 
came up with what he called analysis situ, in other words, analysis of the situation, which is as close to topology as any 17th, 17th century mathematician came. Mm. And again, he also came up with the idea of what he called a caracteristica universalis, a universal characteristic or a universal calculus that would allow you to move in any discipline with ease. And of course, you know, he he was busily trying to invent this. And I suspect um, that that what they are looking at is the same thing of, of what I've been calling topological metaphor, this this idea of of a nothing that is differentiated and information added to the system that is ultimately driving creation that is analogical in nature, that is uh, modeling simultaneously not only nature but thought itself yeah. uh, so it's a it, it's a very very interesting um, thing that they're suggesting because all three of them are also suggesting that this was suppressed for some reason yeah before you take it further because it, oh my god there's so many <laughs> despite my hangover I have so many associations here uh, we can't touch them all but although Everything you're saying is, for me, easy to follow if, you know, if we just divided what you were saying in simple sentences, but it's all have to come together. So let's, let me see here. I'm thinking that if we use the topological as a metaphor, you are basically using the geometrical approach. And mm -hmm. like Pythagoras said in the beginning, God geometrized. Now you're saying something very important here, and that is mm -hmm. through symbol. Because when I look in history, what I see is that all religions or better philosophical systems, and especially the oldest ones all over yes, the world, yes, the older exactly. they get, the more similar they are. Yep. They use symbolism as the way to convey this. They are not intellectualizing yes. it as you and I am doing now by discussing it. Right. Because this is so abstract that it's, you, you have the saying in English that a picture says more than a thousand words, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 Now a symbol says more than a thousand pictures. So yes. when you get at this yes. deeper level, uh, we kind of leave the rational uh, cognition right. and we come into a much more creative way of thinking. And yes. if we use math as a language, because like the scientists say that if there was one language that could be understood by any kind of life form, no matter where in the cosmos you are, no matter where in the dimensions you are, it would be math. Right. <laughs> and math is an expression of symbolism. Yes. So let's see here. What you're talking about is actually the creation. Because I see this uh, thing in all creational systems, and I see it even in a Judeo-Christian system where they talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's exactly. the same thing in Indian. They talk about Vishnu, Brahma, Shiva, the same right. in Egyptian, Isis, Osiris, and um, Hippocrates. So uh, it's space, and space has three dimensions. Right. Mm -hmm. So it goes straight from nothing to three and it bypasses two right, bypasses yes. two and the Pythagoreans said they call it <laughs> in the more superficial uh, accounts it was evil well they avoided two well because even, two didn't exist in nature they said even even in uh some of the Greek fathers, you have the expression in, in St. Gregory of Nazianzus when he's talking about the Trinity. Yeah. He actually says there is no middle step of two. Right. 
It's it's an evil dualism. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a dualism that is not there. So the other thing about this this metaphor is, in a certain sense, you're creating not a a binary system. You're creating a ternary sort of logical system. But but it, actually, it's four because first you have zero, which is in its own worth uh, something, which is nothing. Then you have one. God awakens from his sleep from from zero to one. Zero and one is actually the same. It's just the only difference between <laughs> zero and one is the is the dot in the middle of the circle, right? That's the only. It's the eye awakening. So you you have zero and you have one, which is the same, but there are two different states of the same, right? So and then you go from one to three. Mm-hmm. And you have two just as a conceptual bridge between one and three. Uh, that means four altogether. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the other interesting odd thing about this metaphor, because when you start looking at it or playing with it, it actually gives rise to numbers. Exactly. So in other words, in the order of concepts of this thing, this is the other part of the, the metaphor that's so fascinating, is that there is an order of concepts and how and when they emerge. Yeah. So and, and that's you know, that whole thing is, is a very Egyptian idea, you know, you can go back Yeah, yeah. My approach to this before yeah. I, I noticed you wrote about it has been the Egyptian Greek the the, the, the numbers approach. Right. And and I and I, I concede the geometrical approach is just as valid, if not better. Uh, so, so there we have two different ways to understand these things. Yeah, even it, there, the metaphor. It's important that the met- people understand that the metaphor is a metaphor. In other words, it's 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 <laughs> yet another analogy yeah. for something that ultimately transcends analogy. Mm. But we humans can only talk about things analogically. So, you know, it, it kind of explains – it's a both-and situation that kind of explains that whole process in itself. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. Symbols are absolutely key and crucial here. Uh, and this is why, at least in, in, my, in my approach to, to, to try and symbolize this whole thing, I chose topology as, as the way to do it. Because it has, again, with that empty hyperset symbol in, in mathematical notation, that's almost a perfect symbol because mm. it's a zero with a line through it. So in other words, right, you're, right. You're, you're, you're not even willing to go to the idea of, um, to the idea of zero as being adequate for this. Uh, it's, it's the old expression of, you know, a famous Eastern Orthodox saint by the name of Gregory Palamas, who, who just throws throws most people into a tailspin because he'll say things like, "Well, if if the world exists, God does not, and if God exists, the world does not." You know. <laughs> so, yeah, you, because you have the same problem with the zero. Because yes, as yeah. soon as you have this encircling line, this circle, right? right? Then you have something. Then you have limited it. Yeah. Exactly. So zero should really be nothing. But then you can't use it practically because yeah, exactly. there's nothing there. So you know, it's it's it's. Uh, it's it's a very very rich concept and symbols you know i think it was schwaller de lubitsch that pointed out that that the egyptian hieroglyphs are really symbols of this whole analogical process because you have to sit and study them you can't just look at them and say look them up in a dictionary and say well this symbol means this no no it's not uh learning by memorization because the these ancient languages the academic term for it 
is is paranomasia, which which means that they they function on a multitude of levels simultaneously. Could could you repeat that word? Para paranomasia. Paranomasia. P a r a n o m a s i a. So so para means over, mm -hmm. and uh, what's the root word for for the rest there? It, words. Ah, oh, right. Beyond words. Yeah. It's the idea of conveying a multitude of levels at the same time. In other words, right. ancient languages are are designed, so to speak, if I can draw yet another analogy, <laughs> to, <laughs> to be rather similar to, let's say, a, a, a fugue by Bach. Right. Uh, they're they're functioning on a multitude of levels independently, but simultaneous simultaneously harmoniously with each other in other words it's not simply one melody propped up by a chord with you know a, a drum beat in the background uh, that's the way most of us think of language functioning on one level uh, to convey one level of meaning yeah. but when if you've studied ancient texts the difficulty is that you're dealing with languages that were trying to convey multiple levels of meaning at the same time yes Yes, this is uh, my big. This is my big beef, quite honestly, with modern Bible translations, because right. the the translational philosophy is to convey the simplest meaning that's there. But you know, if you look at the Greek of the New Testament, you're oftentimes confronted with expressions that that carry two or three or more yeah. meanings simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. Like in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now yeah. I I know that if you look at the original Greek word for for word, right. Uh, I, I forgot what that word was, but uh, they, they, it's actually logos in, yes. in the original Greek. The problem yes. with logos is that if they meant the, the word word as a colloquial expression of something right. you're saying, right? <laughs> right? They wouldn't use logos. They would use this other Greek word that I forgot. They'd use the word rima for that. Yeah, yeah. whereas logos can mean it's, idea. Yes. It can mean law. Yes. It can mean uh, teaching. It can mean so many things. Yes. And and let yeah. me just quickly interject too that if you look at the so-called holy languages, the, the the ancient languages, right, you'll see that like in the hieroglyphs, you see that one letter is an expression of a number, of yep. a sound, yep. of a meaning, yep. of a uh, word of an image. I mean, they have these multi-layers. So how yes. do we know? So that means that any text you have. Right. And the same goes for runes. The same goes for uh, uh, Sanskrit. It means that any text you have can have a multiple layer of meaning Abs they want to convey to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, and it gets lost by the academicians usually. Well, it, it gets lost because our culture is not, a, if I can use the analogy, our culture is not a contrapuntal culture. Mm. And and again, I, I've I've said many times to people in on the website, in the members area, in in various interviews, that if you are able to listen intelligently to, let's say, the music of, of a Bach, you are much more able, because you're, you're listening to several lines, independent lines of music moving together, mm. you are much more able to approach these ancient languages and listen to them in the same way 
because that's the, what they're doing. They, they're contrapuntal languages. They are moving on several different staves of, of the score, so to speak, at the same time. Ah, so, so your, your training in, in playing Bach and listening to Bach yes. has actually helped your understanding absolutely. of this metaphor. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Because he applies the same principles mu music-wise. Oh, absolutely. He not only applies them, but I'll, I'll go you one further. You probably haven't got to that part of, of Thrice Great Hermetica, but I, I spent some time in that book with the two box that, that I so adore, Johann Sebastian and, and Carl Philipp Emanuel. Mm. The reason I spent the time with them is because I wanted to point out to people that when you, when you read the music theory texts of that era mm. in Germany, they are full of alchemical terms. Right. So, in other words, you, you're listening to a kind of musical alchemy when you're listening to. It's true. So many musicians in Germany at the time. Oh yeah. Were were either, for instance, they were masons. Yes. Or, or they studied these uh, spiritual doctrines. Right. So yeah, there would be, and many of them composed plays meant to convey a ritual sure. approach to this uh absolutely what you call a topological metaphor absolutely you know when huh. when they when they talk about the idea of a motif you know and then bach will use the term forspinnung mm. spinning spinning it forth in other words picking out all the latent meaning in that musical form uh, when they talk about permutation or, or transmutation of a motif, they're using deliberately alchemical words to describe an intelligible, rational process that they are bringing to their music. So this is why you have uh, the idea in that era of, of affect, A-F-F-E-K-T in, in the German, mm. Is It's a very peculiar word because what it means is what they're trying to do is come up with precise musical formulae to convey an objectified emotion, a kind of platonic emotion. Wow. It's an emotion that the composer, the performer, and listeners all enter into. So in other words, it's not simply... Uh, like the Romantic era composers, they're not trying to communicate their subjective perspective on no. something. They're trying to enter into a much more objective experience. And the same was done by the great uh, painters, by the way. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Raphael, Michelangelo, they, just another medium, yeah. the visual yeah. medium. But, but would you say then that... Um, this music, this ingenious music system was kind of a... actually. You could call it a kind of a scientific instrument yes. to influence the consciousness. Yeah, there's an interesting, that's a very, very profound observation, I think, because it was echoed by um, Sir John Elliot Gardner did this little uh, documentary of, of the life of Johann Sebastian Bach, and in it he interviews a variety of people, and he interviewed... I believe it was a mathematician at, at Cambridge, and she said something that just floored me, that was so dead on. She said, well, J.S. Bach is, is a scientist and a mathematician who's chosen to work in the language of music. Right. <laughs> and, and it's the same, you know, Michelangelo, Raphael, Rembrandt, Poussin, Velasquez, mm -hmm. all of these people are, are taking that very same similar sort of hermetic approach to this and applying these these very abstract concepts in a very deliberate, well-thought-out way in, in the craft of their art. Mm. 
Mm. And it's it's very difficult, you know, with the modern culture that we only listen to each other or to our music on one level and listen mm. merely as passive receptors to someone else's quote unquote uh, subjective artistic vision. I think you can withdraw the word artistic from there, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Subjective. yeah. In many yeah. cases, not all of them, but in many cases. No, but for, for me, art is uh, being a magician. It is to lift you yes. uh, in touch with the essence of, of existence, like these people did. And I, I'd venture that the painters were actually using the topological metaphor more than the musicians because... Well, this is particularly true. Um, it's particularly true in... in, in the the sacred geometry that you can find in exactly Michelangelo or Nicholas Poussin. It's yeah because mu music uses time, uh, like Pythagoras said, music is numbers in time, right. whereas geometry is numbers in space. Right. And so, so the spatial approach is clo is easier to understand from a visual approach. Right. And the mu musical is a more masculine. That's more time, the time component, as I see it. Right. It, but it's the same principle yes. that, that we're seeing, you know, the mm. sacred geometry, you know, being so many years in the Eastern Orthodox Church, you, you look at an Orthodox icon and they're full of it, you know, they're, they're very deliberately. Yeah, and Islamic even, and Coptic. Even, oh, absolutely, absolutely. You find this over and over. And both. the Celtic Church. The Celtic Church, absolutely. Yeah. You find it everywhere yeah. um, if, if you know what you're looking for. Uh, I think personally, since you since you've mentioned the Pythagoreans, there is a thesis that I've had for a number of years, and I'll just crawl way out onto the twig of speculation here and toss it out there for cool. people to think about. Uh, our Western system of music, our tonal system of music, is I think first of all hermetic music. In other words, it's it's based on the idea of the harmonic series. If you go back, say, a thousand years into history, you do not hear the same quality, the same sound in the music. And the reason why is that they had not figured out how to tweak the harmonic series, the basic you know, nature-given harmonic series, in such a way that would allow you to move in the course of one piece of music from one key to another. Right. So just let, let me dumb this down. A musician at that time had to stop. If he was to play a modern song, he had to stop, right. then recalibrate his instrument, and then keep yep. playing. Right, right. Because he couldn't um, tune it. Right, exactly. Mm. When they found out how to do this, beginning you know, during, during the Renaissance, that's when modern Western tonal music was born. And... It's not accidental it's coming out of the Renaissance because that's the the outbreak into the public awareness of hermetic principles. So let's go back to the Pythagoreans. If you look at if you look at the Pythagorean musical system, the Pythagorean theory of music, they discovered this. They pointed this discrepancy in the nature given harmonic series very early on. They called it the Pythagorean comma. And if you research it, it's all about music. How do we tune the instrument so that we can function in any given key without having to retune the instrument? So in other words, what I think happened was the Pythagoreans actually discovered this modern system of, of Western music that we take for granted. Mm. You know, that's been the basis of music from Bach to the Beatles. 
I think they discovered this, and this was one of their huge secrets that was... Yes, and, and it was so serious to them that... Oh, yeah, uh, oh, absolutely. That uh, And the reason wasn't, uh, you know, in order just to sit and listen to good music, although Pythagoras <laughs> no, <it wasn't. laughs> is, is, is said to have discovered how you can influence consciousness through music. Oh, yeah. But... The reason was precisely because this is a metaphor to so much deeper truth. Well, yes, it's a, it's it's a it's a cosmological system. Yeah, and they they knew this, they understood this. They're, or, you or as you actually admitted in a bite show once, you said straight out. I remember now. You said this may be the first attempt in known history to for a unified field theory. Oh, absolutely. And the reason why is, again, this <clears throat> the natural harmonic series has to be mathematically tweaked. In other words, it's as if nature is presenting us with a mystery. Can we solve it? Mm. And I think very early on that the Pythagoreans realized with, with their understanding of the comma that this was the mystery. And if, if it could be resolved by geometric mathematical means, which of course is how it was eventually resolved, <laughs> yeah. that you would have a system of tonal music that would unlock a huge cosmological secret. Yeah. So when I say that, that Western music by tempering the harmonic series, it unlocked a cosmological key because it unified all of the overtone systems of the auditory part of the scale and then provides a clue to, well, can we do this with the entire har harmonic series, not only in the auditory scale, but the electromagnetic frequency scale? Exactly. Now, can I just interject uh, uh, a translation here to sure. pe people who are at my, my level? Because <laughs> I, I'm really the only reason I'm following you now is that I've studied this in both your expression and otherwise. Otherwise, I would be lost right now. So let, let me let me try to dumb this down then. Because people may say, oh yeah, but yeah, music influences, but only to a limited degree, you know. Because people with lighters and concerts and stuff, yes, you can cry when you listen, <laughs> but no, this is much deeper. Now, granted. Uh, First is scientific fact that everything in existence vibrates. That, that you can't get away from that, right? Exactly. So if everything vibrates, uh, you, then you have to understand how, what is the law of vibration. How does uh, movement, vibration, in uh, affect each other? Mm -hmm. Now, if you start to understand the laws of vibration. Then you could start, start to understand the system of magic, which is that uh, yes. similarities influences each other. You have the resonance principle, the dissonance principle, yes. the harmonics and stuff like that. Now, what you're saying is that if you can decode these things via music, and, and by the way, if everything vibrates, then everything actually has a sound. Right. And that doesn't mean that we, ha we necessarily can hear the sound. And I won't even go into the philosophical thing about the tree in the forest, but just let's just agree upon that even planets make a sound. It's just that we, yes. in order for us to hear it, we have to translate the uh, range of vibrations into an audit yes. auditorial range of vibrations, which is limited. Granted, cats can see some higher frequencies, uh, dogs can hear some higher frequencies, bats. So, so it's not similar for all creatures, but we have more or less the same range of 
auditorial audible uh, range now if you know how this works within the auditorial system you can influence other ranges yes of vibrations like you're saying the electro electromagnetical range yes and that's when you actually have both a very heavy system of uh, you could call it magic or a system of science because it's the same thing basically yeah it's how to 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 understand how stuff works against each other yeah it's it's a system of analogical magic if you will um mm. Resonance is kind of the scientific term for basically what what the ancients would have considered magic. Right. Uh, and and it's very interesting to note within the Western esoteric tradition, if you if you read grimoires, you know, yeah. the magician is told to vibrate the names that they're that they're invoking. Rather, in other words, you're not simply set, told to speak them. No, you're told to vibrate them. So in yes, other words, and, and it is Samothrakian mysteries. Yes. to be a high priest, it wasn't enough just to uh, know the words and uh, tones and uh, sounds. You had to be an adept in vibrating right. them. You had to have a voice, actually. Right. And now now we go back to ancient Egypt. And I agree with you. Uh, the original pyramid was uh, pro most probably a machine, most probably made by auditorial effects, most probably yep. also uh, somehow uh, created auditorial effects. But... Even after they lost this Atlantean knowledge, so to speak, they kept the the, the high priests uh, preserved uh, a ritualistic, probably l losing many layers of meaning, but retaining a layer of meaning yes. uh, when it came to sound, because they used the pyramids in the decaying uh, areas to uh, after it was a machine when it was just a remnant. They used it for acoustical purposes too yes. in their mm -hmm. in the mystery dramas yeah absolutely i think you're dealing uh, particularly with egypt i think you're dealing with a legacy civilization where this knowledge yeah. has declined somewhat but the basic principles and premises have, have been preserved and you find this idea of uh, of tuning uh, so to speak, the universe, even in the modern uh, plasma physicist David Bohm, I wrote about him in, in Babylon's Banksters, because what he was attempting to do was calculate the mathematical equivalent of, of the Pythagorean comma mm. and apply it to the entire harmonic series. What's the, you know, what is the exact mathematical interval that will allow us, so to speak, to move from one key to another in any frequency range of the entire spectrum mm. so in other words again he had this understanding that if there was going to be that kind of unification in, in physics uh it wasn't going to come about by cramming together relativity and, and quantum mechanics <laughs> it was <laughs> going to come about by some sort of frequency analysis and and uh unification along those lines so i you know i've always thought he was he's one of my favorite physicists because he had these kinds of uh, sort of, so to speak, mystical insights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I say it's not a coincidence that Pythagoras uh, and many other uh, great ancient thinkers were initiated into the Egyptian mysteries. But right. when you mentioned right. this thing, do you think it's a coincidence then? I mean, I would say that quantum physics, no, actually, I would say that superstring theory mm -hmm. is. Pythagoreanism on steroids. 
Yeah, in a certain <laughs> sense it is, because it's it's nothing but a theory of vibrations in two dimensions, of, of things on the scale of the Planck length. Right. And when you even even before superstring theory, if you go back to some of these very early attempts at unified field theories, uh, Einstein, uh, Kaluza, people that were were playing with these theories back in the 20s and 30s. Mm. When you look at them, it's very interesting that they've all got certain things in common. They've all got a geometric approach in common. Uh, in other words, how do we how do we take the geometry of of electromagnetism, which is kind of a, a donut, if you will, mm-hmm. and general relativity, which is kind of a a ball with um, surrounding three dimensional space warps, and and put these two geometries together to come up with a unified field theory. Well, interestingly enough, if you look at Kaluza and his very early first attempt to do this. One of the interesting things is is that that fourth spatial dimension is in vibration. Mm. So in other words, even there, even in these types of approaches, you still can't get rid of this idea of of <coughs> pardon me of of vibration. <coughs> pardon me. So you get you get this idea in in the way I'm approaching it is if you take two sets you know, mathematical sets and, and fill them up with members that they both have in common, what would distinguish them would be the phase that they're in, the vibration that they're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, again, this this is a possible way of perhaps explaining uh, astrology and the fact that, you know, we're born at a certain place and time yeah. with certain planets and certain positions. This is going to create uh, if you will, a systemic vibration that imprints itself on you at, at the moment of birth. Yeah. And so when planets return to approximately the same types of things, it's going to be like hitting overtones on your natural personal uh, overtone series, so to speak. Yeah. And you're going to be kind of in sync during those times. And, you know, at other times you're not going to be so in sync. You know, we all experience this. But my point here is I think that there's perhaps an underlying physics basis to all of this that we we have yet really to understand or even examine because, of course, well, all of this is just pseudoscience, you know. And <laughs> no, but, but let me quickly rationalize it because the modern approach to understanding how there can be a correlation between uh, planetary harmonics, so to speak, and uh, what happens on Earth is very simply before they thought magical, they thought, okay, the planet is beaming a ray onto my skull. Right. That's no, but now they're looking at it more like if everything vibrates, there are, there are structures. Yes, exactly. Because uh, th- that's the point with vibration. It, it, it's a structure of movement. Now it, it creates an interferometry pattern, you know, and and that. You know, yeah. So so you kind of look at the at the sky as a clock. So it's like okay, if I'm born at two o'clock, now the the planets will have this inter eternal correlation, and what happens on Earth will have this internal correlation, right. and both of them are following a deeper root cause so right. it's not it's not that the planet itself is sending a beam to you it's that the planet responds to the same thing that the atmosphere down here on earth responds to which is this deeper right uh, causal topological metaphor yeah it's responding to a a structure of information yeah. in in that field of nothing so to speak Right. And when that structure comes around again or comes around in close... Yeah, it's 2 o'clock again. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's it's going to have it's going to have those types of resonance effects. So, mm. you know, this is deep stuff and and it's it's as far as I think, Al, um I think we're looking at the beginning of a very different kind of science because there've been hints in the literature as I've tried to point out in the books. Mm. There've been hints of serious scientists actually looking at this stuff and making these types of deep correlations. And of course, like, like who who would you mention who are onto it? Oh, easily there's a fellow back during the 1950s by the name of Nelson that worked for RCA. Mm. And RCA hired him to find out, you know, why is it that at certain times of the year, our shortwave reception is so much worse than others? And he found amazing correlations between planetary oppositions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then that's an astrological term, whether, you, whether we want to admit it or not. He found that when planets were in positions of grand crosses, for example, that shortwave reception was interfered with. And, you know, he published this and was roundly denounced for, you know, indulging in astrology and so right. on. No, but the study of cycle is a decent science. And, yeah, and, cycles itself. Yeah. The mm. study, you know, Herbert Hoover hired Edward Dewey to study why we keep having these boom and bust cycles. And Dewey, you know, having the resources of, of the U.S. Department of Commerce available to him, just started to put it all together, and he discovered that the, there are enormous long-wave cycles. Well, what are waves? Well, they're vibrations. Yeah. And he was so fascinated by this that he founded the, the Society for the Study of Cycles and just started collecting data on every imaginable type of cycle that you could conceive of. And again, it's, it's a case of dealing with waves with frequencies with phases and so on and so forth and and yeah, yeah but if it's anything the ancient did in their science that it was to map cycles phases precisely precisely and again what did what did the ancients tell us you you go back to some old egyptian texts some old babylonian texts and they'll both south america south america sun uh, cycles they'll mm. they'll tell you that these observations were compiled over thousands of years in other words what they're telling you is that the basis of their so-called you know pseudoscience of their of their astrology was based on observation of tremendous amounts of data over a tremendous amount of time mm. and i'm enough of a of a text person that i when texts tell me something i tend to take them seriously particularly when they tell me something like that <laughs> and when when you look at that statement and then look at dewey you know doing all of his work for herbert hoover after the great depression then you begin to see that my word for about 3,000 years, we have not paid any attention to this in any really meaningful scientific way. We're just starting, in other yeah. words, yeah. To, to, to try and understand all of this stuff and make some rational scientific sense out of it. So, you know, I'm, I'm firmly foursquare uh, against those who would just knee-jerk react to this and say, well, that's just pseudoscience. No, it's not. It's just something that we haven't paid much attention to until very, very recent times. And therefore, our, our approximations now are going to be clumsy. They're going to be out of the ballpark. We've got to start taking a uh, much closer look at these things. I do think, uh, I don't know if you've got to that part in the third way yet, but I do think that this is one of those 
secret projects that they are busily looking at is yeah. data correlations between different systems and their cycles. Yeah, because I was thinking about also scientists uh, like Hoagland's favorite, what's his name, Korsarev, you know, Torsion. Oh, yes. Stuff. Oh, yes. Absolutely. But these guys that, that are into the, the um, free energy stuff, that they are onto this too. Because oh, yeah, you, you, you can't avoid it. If you're going to have a unified field theory, you can't avoid it. Yeah, because the other thing about this approach is that what you're really saying is that there's no such thing as a closed system. Right. Uh, all systems are open to each other, and that brings us again back to this metaphor. Because, again, if you're starting from that initial undifferentiated nothing and then you start differentiating it, that means that in each and every formal description of each and every differentiation, that original nothing remains in the description itself. Mm -hmm. So that's telling you that every system is open to every other system that results from this process. I just had a realization. Uh, let me share it with you. I'm, I'll do it quick. Sure. In quantum, um, Amit Goswani said in an yes. in interview with him recently that it's actually, it's, it's so insane now in quantum physics that if, oh, there's, if there's no observ <laughs> observer there to observe it, then per definition, it, it only exists potentially. It doesn't yes. really exist. So in other words, you have to have a self-conscious ingredient for it to actually manifest in existence. Now, let's translate this to the topological metaphor. In the beginning, mm -hmm. let's say there's there's nothing. Let's translate that metaphorical to there's God sleeping. Mm -hmm. So God exists in the way that there is something, but, but there is nothing because like quantum physics says, you have to have self-consciousness. There has to be something that knows that it's observing. So if you're sleeping, like Amit Goswani said, when if you're sleeping and there's no one else alive around you in that area, per definition, that area doesn't really exist in the objective world as we understand it. As soon as you awaken, it does exist again. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to wrap your head around it. But let's say, let's take that at face value. That means that when there is nothing, there is God sleeping. When God awakens, then there is something. Mm -hmm. And is that when we, we can say that limits are coming in, that differentiation, that's God observing yes. itself, God uh, being, quote-unquote, poetically speaking, lonely, and wanting to... And nothing can exist outside of yourself. So within itself... It differentiates, it makes a mirror of itself, as above, so below. And then you get, uh, you don't get two as you would think. You would think, okay, I get a circle and then a copy of that circle, like an eight, so to speak. No, but both of these things are taking place within the bigger circle of God, both sleeping and being awake, which means you get three. Well, Sorry for the rambling, but I'm no, so no, engaged No, 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 no. Yeah. There's, one, there's one caution here to, to okay. place on this. And that is that observation in that view then becomes a defining characteristic of God. Right. And what the metaphor is saying is that there is absolutely no prior reason or rational principle to this undifferentiated nothing. So in other words, we can't say if it's asleep, it's awake and so on and so forth. Nor can we say that it's inside or outside of time or any of these other things? Because these are all pro products of the of differentiation. differentiation. Yeah. 
So even it's very interesting if you look at this metaphor carefully, closely, that first differentiation itself is very, very interesting because what it is in physics terms is describing a uh, systems state change. Now, the question at that point is, is that a system state change inside or outside of time? Because that's what time is really measuring, is a system state change. Right. Well, it's a, again, the problem here is it's a both and. Because you can't say that it began to be, <laughs> and you can't say, no. you cannot, cannot say that it didn't begin to be. <laughs> so, in other words, what the metaphor is doing here is it's showing us, again, that, that ultimately our concepts that we bring to it in we break down, yeah. Break down. This is why you find in in um, Western Christian mystical theology, and by Western here, I'm including the Eastern churches as well. You you find this idea of the via negativa, the negative way. In other words, you clear away for union with God. You clear away every category that you can. Uh, but yet, at the same time, they'll tell you that you. But, but you can't yeah, precisely. You can't, and they'll also tell you that that you cannot do that without the via analogia, without the way of analogy. So, in other words, mm. those twin things always work together. To forget one is to forget the other. But let's let's examine it a bit closer here, because nothing. Uh, <laughs> let's look at the word emptiness or absence. Mm -hmm. That's actually something because that's vacuum. Mm -hmm. But if I have my hands in a vacuum, I, I put my hands into a vacuum uh, box mm -hmm. and the hands are separated. You could say that technically there's nothing mm -hmm. between my hands, but there's still something. But that something is, is still, it's emptiness. That something is emptiness, it's absence. Mm -hmm. How do we wrap our head around this? Again, you, again, you, it's a both <laughs> and. This, this is why this is why this metaphor is so very perplexing to people because people are used to thinking in a, a uh, what I call an either or dialectical way. It's either this or it's that. And the problem with the metaphor is, and I keep telling people this, is it's a both and. This is why it's a three-based structure rather than a two-based structure. It's not a dualistic structure, in other words. And this is what's so very, very frustrating to people, uh, to, to wrap their head around that. Yeah, but they can understand it in examples, right. because that gives the analogical exactly. learning. Let's, exactly. say, let's say photons. Uh, Einstein say that uh, you cannot travel faster than light. Now, what we know is that Every particle in existence is dual, except for photons. So <laughs> if you are going to break the speed of light, which is obviously possible, then you have to, the vibrations have to withdraw from the world of polarity and coming into this singular state, well, which transcends the, the dualism. Even there, you see what the, what the metaphor is also doing is it's a very non-local phenomenon. Because, as I've said, in every formal description of every derivative, you have the presence of that symbolic notation of the nothing that begins the process, all right? So, in other words, mm. the, the idea of open systems, another way of saying that is that every system, pardon me, every system is entangled with every other system. So, you're dealing also with something at root that is profoundly non-local. 
to use mm. to use the physics term. So photon entanglement, the way I'm looking at it or understanding it or attempting to understand it, I should say, <laughs> is that this is yet another manifestation of the metaphor in action. Mm. Because whether we like it or not, photon entanglement in a in a kind of simplistic way violates that faster than light transference of information that Einstein said was impossible. Well, if it's impossible, we've got a huge philosophical problem because we've got, we're living in the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is 400,000 light years from one edge to the other in diameter. Mm -hmm. And yet it's a coherent structure, obviously, when you look at it. Yeah. And you look at other galaxies of similar size, Andromeda, it's a coherent spiraling structure. Well, that structure, how is that held together if you cannot have faster-than-light transference of information? Mm. So there's some other thing at work that has to hold this all together. I mean, these types of philosophical problems are, are the huge philosophical problems squatting right in the middle of cos cosmological physics. And even beyond that now, you know, astronomers in the last few decades have discovered the fact that there are whole galactic clusters of of galaxies that are kind of clumped together in these. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but even logic, even though even logic, yeah, yeah. But even logic could help us on a, uh, realize that there has to be a strata of existence not within time space because yes. because yes. if we are to travel from here to Andromeda, let's say, then. It cannot be within uh, the four dimensions of light. It has it has to be that you're stepping out of the whole uh, yep. existence and then you're stepping into the whole existence yep. at another place, like teleportation. And and they uh, uh, Einstein and Nathan Rosen, I think, were the first uh -huh. people who were onto this. They they said that if you that black holes. Are, and, and now it's gotten a renaissance. They say that black holes are actually exits from this kind of existence. And they're speculating that quasars are entrances, so to speak, mm -hmm. from in this hyperspace or whatever you want to call it, this meta. Yep. Yep. No, uh, so I'm saying everything shows us, um, uh, we, we cannot travel through space without also traveling through time. That means that we're stepping out of the whole polarity existence. So there is, there is another strata to existence. And if it's like you're saying, if you, you say, okay, we cannot surmise anything in the beginning, uh, before the beginning, then my only metaphoric explanation for existence is this. Let's say that you and I, we live in the future and we can connect ourselves to computers. Uh, mm -hmm. But not, not only that, we can even forget that we, when, when we are playing with our avatars in the uh, connected computer system, mm -hmm. we, we can forget that we are actually sitting and playing like the Matrix. You remember the plot right. of the mm -hmm. movie, The Matrix. And so as soon as we start our computers and enter our avatars, that's when existence begins. And the reason I'm using this metaphor is that quantum scientists are now saying this is, uh, they're saying it's not a metaphor. They're saying some of them are actually saying that we are uh, in a holographic space yes. and that we are beings, entities who are not presence within this right. four dimensional space. We are, right. 
not somewhere else, but we are somehow else, and we are playing right. through these manifest these life forms. Uh, right. how, how do you relate to all this? You probably heard. Well, it. I, I actually, I actually relate to that rather well, um, and I think most most religious and, and mystical traditions have some similar view their own their own metaphorical ways of expressing this but certainly uh i take that view simply because i'm i'm one of those stubborn curmudgeons that simply does not accept the idea that the human mind is located inside the brain right. uh, i'm one of those people that also being a stubborn curmudgeon does not believe that our individual personhood is simply the sum total of our memories, emotions, will, and so on and so forth. In other words, even personhood itself is an indefinable entity. It's it's very much one of those nothings mm. or no things because our our absolute uniqueness really predates, so to speak, our our participation in this world. We had a very interesting philosophical discussion on precisely this topic in, in our last member's vid chat on my website. And one member proposed the idea that every person enters the world with a, a, a topological space, so to speak, assigned to them with, oh. all of the, with all of the multitudes of choices that we face during our lifetimes. And we make our way through it like a, a process of, of what a mathematician would call tessellation. Uh, we, you know, we make certain choices that take us in one direction and not another. Yeah, but through several lifetimes or are we just within a lifetime? Well, within a lifetime. Mm. But if you accept that idea, then what you're really saying is that, and I've, I've said this many, many times, that we sort of, so to speak, transduce our, our personhood into this existence. Um, that... The, that again, we're dealing with open systems. What we do in this life influences and affects right. that ground state, so to speak. The that our personality that is existing somehow differently hmm. in a deeper strata, and that that in turn affects what we do in this life. Hmm. So again, I think we're on the cusp of things here. We're not. We're not at the end of a scientific development. Because what I see going on, I think, in in some aspects of physics is exactly what you're seeing, in that they now are, are coming to the point of realizing that consciousness plays a much huger role in the material world. And that this more for genetic fields and all that. Right, exactly. Than than the materialistic, you know, simplistic nineteenth century Mechanics, science yeah. would have us believe. I have it up in my members area a webinar on some scientific research that was done by Dr. William Tiller. Now if you get a chance, look at that webinar because um this guy is a was, I should say, a professor of materials science of all things. At the University of California. <laughs> of all things, yes. Yeah, of all things. <laughs> and and what he did was he performed a set of experiments of can conscious intention uh, that is very specifically spelled out affect or modify materials in the physical world with no physical contact of any sort. Hmm. And lo and behold, it does. You know, um, He performed a variety of experiments, very interesting stuff. 
but again, you know, this is all what all of this is telling me is that we're at the end of a philosophical period of development that has ruled Western culture and science basically on the materialistic side of things. And what we're entering into now is a period of, of the beginning of a different scientific paradigm where the interface between the immaterial world, the, the world of consciousness, the world of mind, and so on, is going to be investigated for its connections to the material world. How do these two really relate to each other? And what really caught my attention with, with Tiller's work was that he used, in some of his equations, he used the mathematical symbol for proportion, for, for ratios. And this, to me, again, takes us right back to, to ancient cosmology, you know, even the, even the beginning of the Gospel of St. John, as you mentioned earlier, that we're dealing with a world where there is a rational principle that, that enters into it from outside of it. Mm. and and orders it and and that you know the latin version of the gospel of saint john the beginning of it is very interesting because they translate the word logos there by the latin word ratio and ratio of course is ratio reason proportion so in other words this whole thing implies again by yeah so in, in the beginning in the beginning was the idea and the idea was uh, uh, with God, and the idea was God. That makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah, it's 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 the idea of in the beginning there was ratio. <laughs> if you want, yeah, to go ratio to, to that level. Yeah, you can put that in. <laughs> so, I think we're on the cusp of of these types of investigations. We're not at the end of an era. In other words, is what I'm suggesting. We're at the beginning of a different one. Right. Um, I think. I think in that respect, this whole transhumanist movement is is going to come a cropper, as the British say, because it's based so uh, – it's, it's the last gasp, so to speak, of, of uh, materialism. Yeah. And I think it's going to come a cropper of, of some nasty things that they're probably going to find out as they start tinkering with all of this stuff that, that is going to point them in a very different direction. But uh, the physicists, as you say, are, they're already doing this when, they, when they're saying that we live in a holographic universe or we live in a simulation. We're all avatars and so on and so forth. Yeah, but I, I want to go further because uh, the transhumanism thing we can talk about in another program because that's so that's such a huge topic. Oh, it and, is absolutely. Uh, it's a very negative energy. But yes, um, <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> what you're saying here about modern science it, it sounds like the snake biting its own tail because it sounds yeah. like <laughs> modern. Uh, that's what's a symbol, and literally it means that modern scientists uh, are actually coming back to the Gnostics. Well, they're coming back. I think they're coming back to something that's even, even in a certain sense, deeper than that. Because I think what they're getting back to, you know, physics back in the 17th and 18th century was called natural philosophy. Right. It wasn't called physics. It was called natural philosophy. So, in other words, you know, this is why you have a Newton or a Descartes or a Leibniz writing massive amounts of philosophical works. You know, yeah. Or, in, in Newton's case, trying to figure out what the prophecy of the Book of Daniel is all about. But, you know, what they're what they're really doing is is they're trying to synthesize knowledge in in a gigantic sort of way, and they're coming back to this. 
so I think what we're also seeing is is kind of not so much the death of physics, but the transformation of physics back into natural philosophy. And by the same token, you know, you mentioned Rupert Sheldrake and, and uh, morphogenetic fields. I think you're seeing the same thing happen in biology, and it's high time. Bruce Lipton and all those, yeah. Yes, exactly, mm. exactly, exactly. Mm. Yeah, well, this transformation, then, I just perceive it as we're rediscovering what the ancient ancients knew mm -hmm. but that we are putting it into a contemporary language with contemporary models of expression um, right. that can fit our, our over rational way of um, perceiving the world this 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 old-fashioned materialism that fortunately is at its last rotten grasp but <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's uh, ponder. Let, let's just take a break now, and and we'll ponder yeah. uh, as people uh, let, let the, this sink in. And uh, when we come back after the quick break, we'll double down okay. and explore, explore this, this even, even deeper. Deep, deep, deep. All of our files are free, and will remain free. If you like the show. You can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And we're back with the forum professor, Dr. Farrell. And finally, taking on a more philosophical subject with him. So let's just get right back to it. Yeah. Um, I, I think that um, poetry, uh, just like symbols, uh, symbols is a way to ease our understanding of the, these complex matters visually, whereas poetry is a way to bypass the, the intellect, uh, the emptiness of the ego, mm. and, and mm -hmm. get an intuitive. I want to read for you. A poetic uh, little excerpt that mm -hmm. is, I can send you later the whole thing because it's too much to read. I'll just read a few sentences, but it's called Cosmogenesis. And it, mm -hmm. I have it not from the internet where people be believe everything is. I have it from a private text. I got mm -hmm. through a mystery school thing. Mm -hmm. And it's supposedly uh, going back to the ancient, uh, at least ancient Greeks. And it goes like this. The eternal parent was wrapped in the sleep of the cosmic night. Light there was not, for the flame of spirit was not yet rekindled. Time there was not, for change had not re-begun. Things there were not, for form had not re-presented itself. Actions there was not, for there was no things to act. The pairs of opposites there were not, for there were no things to manifest polarity. The eternal parent, causeless, indivisible, changeless, infinite, rested in unconscious, dreamless sleep. Other than the eternal parent, there was naught, either real or apparent. I'll not read on about mm -hmm. how existence uh, comes into being, although that is interesting. But this is just a way to poetically mm -hmm. try to explain this nothingness that right. we struggle so with. Right. Comments? Well, I again, it's very interesting in that poem, what you have is the idea that dualism itself is is a lesser 
manifestation of something much more transcendent. In other words, dualism ultimately doesn't work as a cosmology, I think is what that is actually suggesting. That bodes very ill for artificial intelligence. It bodes very, very ill for it, yes, mm -hmm. precisely. And we had, again, we've had that philosophical discussion in, in the uh, members' vid chats over many Wow. I, I need to go back there and, and oh, yeah. dig more. Yeah, those vid chats, there's quite a lot of them, but they're worth listening to if you can spare the time and, and energy to listen to them. Because we explore questions like that. And again, I'm in agreement cool. because the problem with computer languages now and with the hardware quite frankly, is that they're, they're dipole systems, they're dualistic systems, they're, they're binary systems. Yeah. And this is what has always been the problem as far as, as far as the metaphor is concerned, is that they cannot get threeness built into these things. Now, mm. quantum computing may change that to a certain extent because rather than and or gates in your computers, you're going to have uh, systems based on the the seven states of the electron. So, in other words, rather than each neuron, ah, vibrational. Yeah, bingo. Yeah, that's bingo, great. Bingo. Hmm. So again, that may change things, and there's indicators that that they're playing around with AI in conjunction with this idea of quantum computing. It's the only solution, actually. Yeah, yeah if they're going to do it, but you know, I'm I'm very skeptical of AI for all the reasons that Nick Bostrom and some other people have been cautioning about because uh, I think it's quite possible that you know you turn on a system like that and it transduces that self from from the yeah Frankenstein's monster. This is the oldest. Yeah, it transduces right. right. You know, Lucifer becomes incarnate in your computer. You know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, my computer is already obsessed. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> I, yeah, mine, mine certainly displays a mind of its own on occasion. That's, yeah. that's very frustrating. But yeah, you know, it's it's the old lawnmower man movie scenario where. Yeah. You, the evil entity gets into the system and you can't get rid of it. Mm. But um, Especially not when the system is connected with everything that matters in our world. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I believe as long as they uh, leave out the very important component of life force, yeah. you, uh, either you call it pneuma in Greek, prana, chi, ki, uh, right. kumra, uh, they have words for this in old traditions. If you leave that component out, you will not get consciousness as we know it. Right. You're going to get consciousness is tightly uh, attached to life force. You're going to get a simulacrum of it, or you're going to get a, a psychopath because uh, there's no emotions. Yeah, you're going to get a psychopath, and it's very interesting, you know, that Lucifer. You look at the way he's described in, in Ezekiel, for example, thy tabrets and pipes were made perfect in thee. Well, you stop and look at that phrase, tabrets and pipes. Wow. Well, that could be a phrase indicative of you know a, a physiology of you know intestines and organs and membranes and so on. So, or or the web or a machine. The web. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or a machine. You know. Yes. <laughs> So uh, I I find the whole enterprise kind of dubious for all sorts of reasons. Oh, yeah. Just to begin with, what why are we doing it? What need do we have? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why are we so obsessed with? with I, I volunteer with my consciousness. That's an artificial intelligence. They can use that instead. <laughs> 
Well, no, it's, you know, insane. it's insane. It, it is. It's a, it's a species of insanity. It's a species of, of you know, will and amnesia, amnesia and insanity. Amnesia. Oh my yes, God. I would wholeheartedly <laughs> agree with the idea of amnesia because you know, rather than try and create uh, the god without, so to speak, let's try and recover our own personal sense of, of dignity and, and connection with, with the divine. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not demon ex machina, but... Uh, right, exactly. Homo exactly. es deus. Yeah, yeah I yeah. agree. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very, very different. Um, you know, and that, that sounds like a, an abandonment of, of Christian principles. It really isn't, yes, because yes. When, you read the, when you read the Greek fathers... You, no, AI is an abandonment of... Well, uh, AI, yes, yeah. but, but the idea of, of, of you know, deification, that, that's the way the, the early Christian fathers yeah. understood it. Yeah. You know, you're, you're not being saved from sin, you're being saved to become like God and, and to, to dwell with him. But, but that's very agnostic too. Yes, of course it is. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's so very pervasive in those ancient cultures that to think that they would think otherwise, you yeah, know, it's, yeah. it's kind of a misnomer. No, but I adhere to the approach that if you go back uh, far enough, you will see that all the oldest traditions in existence from all over the globe, actually, Yes. Uh, it'd it be the Toltec of the uh, American natives, it'd be the uh, Vajrayana of the Buddhist, it'd be the Tantra, it'd be the uh, Celtic Christianity, you know, Coptic, anything. If you look at the essence of their philosophy, all these people, you'll see that it's so similar. And then there's two ways to explain it. One is that, well, it is survivals of the ancient uh, pre-Ice Age civilizations understanding. I won't call it religion, but I won't call it science either. It's something in between. It's, it's both. Mm -hmm. So they say, well, it's because they are remnants, they are survivals. But there's also the other approaches is that, no, we have all the Gnostic approach that we have all a potential direct contact with the source. And indeed, if we are avatars uh, and we are somewhere else, then obviously, yes. But I think is actually, and this is my approach, my belief, that it's both. It's both that we can reconnect with the template in cosmos, but it's also that external reminders have survived in symbolism, in oh, yes, in yes. mythology, in art, everything. Well, yes, what's absolutely. your approach to that? Well, I, I would agree with you. It's, it's you know, I'm a both-and kind of guy. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, you're not dualistic. It's not either or. No, <laughs> I'm really not. I, I do think that, that these things are legacies of, <clears throat> of what, just like you say, of something that was, uh, if we were to look at it now, if we were to be confronted by it now, we would have difficulty of saying, well, is this a philosophy? Is it a religion? Is it a science? What is it? As reflected in the technology. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's all of them. It, it was, uh, I like to say it was a very high civilization. And, you know, ours isn't. Uh, it's getting back there slowly but surely, but it's, yeah. got, a it's got a long ways to go. Uh, but, yeah, I see, I see that this is in part, I think, a legacy of what once was. It may even be in a certain sense of platonic memory that we're vaguely recalling. 
Mm. Um, in our genes that, that's imprinted in, in us? The gene, yeah, it could be that. You know, there's any number of explanations for it. Mm. Uh, and I, I don't think that you have to s- simply devolve upon one to say that that explains it all. Because, mm. again, you know, I think that's kind of a simplistic approach to things. Um, it, it's, it's really all of them. And this is why I think this metaphor idea is so very important, because it allows you to look at the basic commonality of structure behind all of these different myths and, and uh, lore that you have from around the world. Um, they're all saying kind of the same thing, at least in terms of the structure that they're attempting to preserve. They're attempting to preserve it for a reason, and oftentimes they may not even realize the full extent of it. But, mm. um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge thing that we're involved with. And like I say, I think, Al, that, that you look back over the course of human development, particularly in the West since the Renaissance, we've just begun, yeah. really. Uh, we're not at the end of something. We're at the beginning of something. And you can kind of feel it in the air with the panic that you see. With the establishment, yeah. With the establishment, because that establishment has been wedded to this materialistic consumerist philosophy for the last 200 years and is simply collapsing around them. Yeah. Uh, their playbook isn't working anymore. You know, it's it's crystal clear what they're up to, and they're up to no good. And people are awakening, yeah, uh, despite their efforts. Yeah, and it's interesting. Richard Hoagland has the expression that he said. I've heard him say many times that that um, the lie is different. This is all. This is all due. Yeah, the lie is different at every level. But it's this change that we're going through now. We're where the good people seem to be getting better and the bad people seem oh, yeah. to be getting worse, yeah. is that he's maintaining that this is somehow possibly related to a physics. Well, that may be. You know, we're just we're just on the cusp of trying to understand this stuff. Yeah, there is this new age concept that we are that our solar system, because we know that uh, the galaxy print everything is repeating itself uh, in atoms, in electrons, uh, and in galaxies. So, yeah, uh, all the so- solar systems in our galaxy are rotating around the central point of that galaxy, which actually is an old uh, ancient uh, doctrine too. Now, yeah, um, and many new ages think that because we now going out from, let's look at it as a clock, actually, a cosmic clock. And let's say that from 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock is a dark period, whereas 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock is a lighter period. Let's compare it to, let's say, winter solstice versus uh, spring equinox, Mm -hmm. two different phenomenons. And by the way, the ancients, uh, one of the reasons they preserved customs, especially connected to Earth, to... to, um, uh, how you say cultivation of earth stuff is precisely for philosophical reasons. Right. So what I just said here is an example. So let's say that we have been, uh, our solar system have been in a astrological house, so to speak, in a clock, in a, in a time zone that's been having a, a bad, a little light. And now we're moving into one with more light. And that's why it will force a polarization because those who are where the spirit is kindled will flame up and the others will kind of wow all the strong light (laughs) i have to hide (laughs) well yeah i think i think there's something to that the 
for those following the Hindu tradition, we're, we're in the Kali Yuga, you know, yeah, which is yeah. a really dark, bad time. And I don't think anybody can look at what's happening in the world today and say otherwise. But no. at the same time, we're in that period of night, and it's going to be very bumpy and get really bad. But uh, at the end of it, you can only stand so much chaos and evil and, and bad before you just finally get fed up and tired with it and start doing some some good things and you know this this again is why i urge people you've got to be responsible for preserving all the good things in our culture and handing them down because even though there have been bad things in western culture to be sure in the main it has been a very uh productive creative culture most of the technology that we enjoy is is the product of it most of the philosophy is actually the result of uh, what uh, pre-Socratic the Pythagoreans discovered. Yeah, it goes back to there. Yeah, so, it's not just music; it's everything, it's, architecture. Everything yeah. comes from out of it. Yeah, yeah. We we have the idea that we in the West live in in the Judeo-Christian culture, which is true. But I would also add that we also live in a humanistic culture, in a kind of hermetic culture. Egyptian-Greek culture, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and a a Greco-Egyptian culture. And its roots are very, very deep. Mm. And to simply jettison those like the the establishment wants us to do and and create this homogenized global porridge, um, (laughs) I don't don't think it's going to be terribly successful. Mm. But... They're going to try it, and it's it's going to have bad results, and and you know we just have to kind of get ready for it. But I do think we're in a transitional age, unlike any other in previous known human history. Yeah. So we're at the beginning of something, not not the end of something. Yeah, no, it is a phase, and we see it's interesting in the new generations because they are growing up now with internet as a default. Yeah, uh, and and a recent statistic showed that they would rather live without food and a lot of basics than internet yeah i know it, and, uh, and i think the exposure to all this information is part of uh, what makes people awake because before we we were we couldn't know what i i can know now whatever happens in most areas of the globe in an instant yep I, i'm not saying people are actually using that people are lazy they are not trying to find out what's going on but they have the possibility to. Now, uh, another thing is that the negative stuff you mentioned uh, may just be actually that we uh, know about it now because of this transparency, because of this information. So it's not necessarily a sign that, well, the means of being barbaric are more refined. We can now we can now torture and kill people in an instance uh, without you know having to do the dirty work of the inquisitors, right? Right. So so yeah, but. Leave all that aside. I wanna, I wanna double down and take it to a different level. I have a hard question for you. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is partly based on something that you talked with Georgian about once. Mm-hmm. Um, just to remind you of the area you were talking about, very deep and very dark stuff about uh, the concept of sacri- sacrifice. Now, right. my question for you. Yeah, so you know where we're going here. My question for you is that in certain obscure esoteric corners, mm-hmm. because esoterica is just not mm-hmm. just one big happy new age family where everybody right. agrees about everything, is a very old uh, and very diverse and very deep uh, strata. Now, the, the one I'm referring to 
which uh, has different exponents among it, uh, says two things. This is a big reasoning, but I'll shut up uh, and, and let you get plenty of time to answer this. One of the schools say that uh, we we have to, that it is possible to survive death as a conscious being, as an ego, so to speak, with your persona, mm-hmm. if if you build something called body of light. This mm-hmm. has different words in different traditions. Like I think the Buddhists call it the diamond body, the ancient Hermetists call it mm-hmm. the fire body. But they say that the reincarnation principle is real. And by the way, every tradition in the world has talked about reincarnation, not the same doctrine, but a, a version of it. Even Christianity has never abandoned reincarnation formally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll not go into this now. So, you can survive, but they say you can survive like we believe reincarnation is, that your ego survives, mm-hmm. but only if you build the vehicle for it. Mm-hmm. Now, the second, uh, there's another layer in esoterica that says that much of what's going on here is that for some reason, and I'll not go too deep into it, I'll just mm-hmm. take the superficial version, that we have to pay energy. We have to Mm-hmm. We have to give energy mm-hmm. to uh, God for like it's a it's a recycling system. It's that we die, and God is boosted, so to speak, and then we're born, uh, and we're born, and God is emptied, so to speak. So that in a way, deaths are a way for the cosmic clock to 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 go on. I'm, I'm mentioning these two doctrines because I see a parallel between both of them are kind of a minority within the more popular belief within mm-hmm. the same areas. Mm-hmm. But I also see a parallel between them. And, and and I can mention modern expressions of this is like Gurdjieff when he say that uh, the moon eats souls. Like Plutarch said that uh, when we die, <coughs> part of us falls back to earth, part of us falls back to the moon, mm-hmm. where the psyche goes, the body goes to earth, the psyche goes to moon, and the uh, spirit goes to the sun. So, so a more modern version, more materialistic version is when Gurdjieff says that the moon eats souls. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. So I, I, I've, I've thrown a lot of balls out for you now to, to juggle with here. <laughs> so well, I'll, I'll shut I, up and let you comment. I, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> unsure of what, what you're getting at in relationship to all of all of this to sacrifice, but um, well, uh, you, you know, to pay energy when you right, die, okay, when you die, yeah, to make a payment. Yeah. Well, um, the interesting thing, as far as I can see, with this this metaphor, topo- topological metaphor idea, is that you can understand it in two very, very different ways. We're back to that both-and way again. And these ways are fundamentally economic, if you will, in, in nature. The first way is if you look at that initial undifferentiated nothing as a unity and then look at each of the derivatives as fractions of that unity – then you've got a system that is essentially closed upon itself and in which each of the entities arriving or deriving in that system owe their existence 
to the others. And in that type of system... So it's battle more than sex. It's warfare more than copulation. Yeah, yeah, it's warfare. It's it's a debt model. Mm. It's a sacrifice model. All right, that's one way to look at it. And that way of looking at it has been more or less... Um, the way that certain cultures have the Christian cultures looked at it that way. The uh, some aspects of, of uh, Brahmanic culture looked at it that way, and so on. And these and these people in in the, these native Indians, uh, what were they called? Uh, the gruesome ones. Oh, the Aztecs. Yes, yeah, Aztecs yeah. looked at it that way as a payment that was owed, and that to to a certain extent, as I used to put it to George Ann, could quite literally shock the medium or, or if you will, so they thought manipulate the gods or manipulate God. The other way of looking at this metaphor is as an open system where that unity is a creative fecundity, if you will, a sex. And you find the sexual metaphors attached to it in, in various cultures as well. Besides the sacrifice war model, you've also got uh, a sexual, creative, fecund model. Absolutely, Egypt, India, yeah. Egypt, India, and so mm. on. Where where the initial undifferentiated nothing produces other versions of itself and multiplies. So, in other words, you don't look at that unity as being fractionalized. Mm. You look at it as creative so in other words you're not creating a fraction one fourth one fifth one sixth you're looking at it as creating one two three four five and so on and so forth yeah plus economy marketplace right it's it's a yeah, it, yeah it's it's an open system mm. and in that system you don't see you don't see this idea of debt you don't see this idea of sacrifice and so on mm. uh sacrifice takes on a, a rather different sort of good meaning that, you know, well, I'm sacrificing for the good of others or, you know, I'm making this sacrifice of love. Yeah, that's, so, that's self-sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a very different sort of conception. So, again, it's, it's, a, it's the way that people have construed this metaphor, I think, that underlies a lot of it um, throughout our history. Right. I put it in one point as the opposition, so to speak, of, of the corn god versus the the debt slavery, you know, sacrifice god. Yeah, the war it's, god. Yeah, yeah, the war god. Um, and it's very interesting, you know, in the in the Aztec tradition. I pointed out in in Grid of the Gods that you had clear statements being made that Quetzalcoatl himself absolutely refused any notion of sacrifice and that it was the demons that came along and introduced the practice. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's very interesting. Uh, uh, Hancock, by, by the way, Hancock claims in his novel about this that, uh, what's the conquistador top dog? What was his name again? Um, oh, um, oh boy, you would ask that. Cortez. Yeah, Cortez. The, he's, he claims that it was the same demon who went to this Indian leader, Aztec leader, who later went to Cortes and claimed he was St. Peter or something like that. At Montezuma, yeah. Yeah, very uh, interesting. It's, it's interesting that in, in the cultures that have the presence of sacrifice, that you see it emerging after. In other words, the, the sacrifice interpretation 
uh, seems to appear later. So it's a degeneration. It's a degeneration of some sort. It seems to be the case. Mm. Uh, but, you know, that's so fraught when you start saying, making those kinds of generalities. That's so fraught with, with difficulties of, you know, having to examine each and every culture and, and do so in depth, you know. So it's a generalization. Uh, and of, it's a question of access to material, too. Yeah, most of it was oral. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, I tell people all the time that there are dangerous aspects of the metaphor, some of which I'll never ever talk about because it's the, it, it can be dangerous. But the sacrifice. Like black magic. Oh, yes. You, you don't want to give out the technique. <laughs> no. No. You know, the sacrifice interpretation of, of the metaphor is an indicator, so to speak, of, of what some of those things are. Um, and, and, it's just it's just gruesome and, and dangerous. Unfortunately, uh, I don't know about you, but I look Al at some of these stories that we hear occasionally in in the media of pedophile scandals, of of child sex rings, of of sacrifice, actual sacrifice. Mm. going on that pop up here and there yeah yeah sacrificing virgins that's an old concept yeah uh, you know we're looking at these scandals in the uk we're looking at the catholic church the catholic church we're looking at them in in uh the the franklin scandal in this country and celebrities and, and celebrities i think we're looking at a global network of some sort i i really do uh, that's just an intuition. I'm not basing that on any evidence other than the fact that these stories seem to be so persistent. Mm. When they appear, they crop up in this locality or that locality. Yeah, but, but see, there, there could be a spiritual explanation because one thing is that… Oh, sure, absolutely. Because one uh, thing is that they're all in, in on it, right? But the, uh, another is that they're just acting on their own negative demonic impulses and there's yeah, some… It's a, it's a power lust. Not a conspiracy, but a, but a spiritual… I'm not saying either. I'm just saying both are possible. Oh, yeah. I'm a both-and person, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It's both a conspiracy and they're cooperating with the demons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, oh I, have no difficulty, I have no difficulty believing that, you know, that there are people that believe that they can gain some sort of power in this fashion and are doing it for that reason. Yeah. I have no difficulty believing also that there has to be an element of conspiracy involved with it simply because if you're going to do that sort of thing, you have to have fellow conspirators. Obviously. The real problem that I see is we're looking at something that it does appear to have some sort of international extent. Yeah. And once you once you realize that, then the question becomes, are we looking at some sort of possible network here? And every every intuition that I have in my bones says yes, but I have yet to find any sort of real um, mm. corroborating evidence for any of that. Um, but, but we, know, yeah, but sure. could we say that these people uh, who are an, uh, who are philosophically aligned with the status quo, the establishment, the old elites, yeah. could we say that the spin on this is that the system is closed, so the, in order to survive, we need to cannibalize it. Yeah. And, and not only that, but parts of it are more worthy than other parts. So more, right. we will sacrifice parts of our body, uh, or hands or feet so that the brain will survive or something like that. So 
So it's a crazy, and, and without realizing that they're actually in a system that could uh, multiply itself if it imitated God, that it could just increase and increase and increase without being less, because as you know, it's the hologram principle. Yeah, it's it's. It, it, I think you're on to it right there when you said cannibalism mm. uh, and cited Plutarch and Gurdjieff, that this is this is their operating principle this is their cosmology and i've said it before many times the establishment elites are people that really cannot think in any other way because they're they're dumbed down themselves they've been the mm. victims of their own dumbing down of other people and they've been at the receiving end of this system so that yeah. for them it's good yeah exactly so you know they can't think in any other way mm. and this this process of cannibalization as you put it very aptly i think is is precisely what you see in in so much of the transhumanist movement if you look behind the language what they're really telling you is we want to survive and we're willing to sacrifice anything else in order to make that possible including parts of our own body yeah. you know it's, and, and they do it they do it the demonic way yeah. Instead of doing it the spiritual way that all religions and avatars have claimed that you can, you are eternal, yeah, there is eternal life, but you have to surrender to, to wisdom and love. Yeah. Instead, they're saying, no, no, I want my ego to survive, yeah. and I, I don't trust, I, and I'm inept in anything but being a, a bastard, so <laughs> I have to, I have to make a machine to preserve yeah, it, this. Yeah, the, wow. you know, the Greek, the Greek word for repentance is metania, the change of what? Mind. <sighs> and, you know, what it's, what it's really telling you is it's a, it's, it's not just being apologetic for something bad that you've done, you know, mm, mm. but it is, it is, it's a, it's a life process of, of, uh, eschesis. It's it's a life process of changing your mind to bring it in conformity with with that logos, and and mm. that's a spiritual thing. It's it's not something that that's mechanical or uh, reducible to easy formulae, right. for the simple reason that everybody is different. Mm. And you know, there's there is in Eastern Orthodoxy there's a, a practice called the Jesus Prayer, and the Jesus Prayer is a very simple little prayer that goes, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Living God, have mercy upon me, the please note the word here, the sinner. Well, why are you referring to yourself as something so absolutely unique? in all of human history. Well, it's because you are absolutely unique. So we have this, this mechanistic approach. And then we've got this approach that, as you say, just about every spiritual tradition on the planet indicates that you have to have some deep transformative yeah. change of mind and mind. Let us note here, isn't simply the process of the intellect. It's your emotions. It's mm. your passions. It's your intuition. Yeah, exactly. It's, Creativity. It's your create everything. It, it's all involved in this process. Mm. And we've, we've looked at, if you look at Western culture and the way it's evolved, is we've reduced even that to uh, what? Simplistic, revivalistic, evangelistic notions that you march up the altar at a crusade and it's going to fix everything. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not the way it works, and it's not the way it's worked in any spiritual tradition on the planet that I can think of. Um, mm. 
So it's, I don't know. We're looking, I think, Al, at, at the problem, really, you know, to draw upon the musical analogy again, we're looking at, at the problem of the contrapuntal culture versus a culture that lives on only one level and the most simplistic and materialistic level at that. And it's breaking down and because it's not a rational, natural order of things. Um, that's why it's in the mess. It's, in it's not a sustainable order of things. Yeah, exactly. But I'd say that these people are adhering to the, they are trapped in the dualistic, in the polarity. Oh, yeah, field. absolutely. I agree. Whereas, yeah. So what we need to do uh, to be free is to transcend the polarity. So this transformation you're talking about, it has to contain the, uh, our whole being and the heart is closer yes. to to the three uh, number thing than because the 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 intellect is a manifestation of the duality right because uh, in order for me to uh, think i have to be able to uh, distinct stuff i have to dissect it i have to analyze that means right. to cut it up and say that this thing is different from this thing yep. and there i'm i'm already trapped in attention o obviously i can learn from within the system about the details and the nitty grits of the system right. Right. but but when i enter the heart i enter a combining a unity aspect right a synthesizing aspect a synthesizing thank you and that's the that's the open uh, system not the closed precisely and in order this is why i keep telling people thinking analogically is crucial to mm -hmm. to understand what that really entails because what it's really asking you to do is go deeper and to synthesize mm -hmm. to realize that you academically may specialize in you know geopolitics or sociology or what have you but to realize that even in those studies you are inevitably going to have to understand history or science or law or literature or what have you, because that's all part of being human. These are all human products. Mm -hmm. And the synthetic approach is, is precisely, you know, we started out with education. This is precisely what education is, particularly in this country, is trying to drum out of you. Yeah. You know, you get your degree in this subject and you must confine yourself to that subject in that career and only that career. Mm. Well, nonsense. <laughs> right. know, which of us, which of us really has led the life that we thought that we were going to leave when we were doing all of that? Well, uh, exactly. Answer. It goes back to the educational thing because uh, yeah. this specialization. I know you have a word in academia when you have a multi-subject approach. Uh, right, interdisciplinary approach. Yes, right? and that's deliberately stopped. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because that, that leads to a, a bigger perspective. That leads to the understanding of, of being able to, to... And it leads it leads to the process of thought where you're able yeah. to look Separate at... Thought. Yeah, to, yep. to look at all contexts and be able to start to discern yes. parallel structures, parallel forms, parallel ideas. Which increases your language. Which increases your language. Precise language, yes. And, and I think that, that if you approach it in the right spirit, it has a very, uh, it has a very humbling effect on the heart. Hmm. Because you realize to a certain extent that you're not alone, number one. And it also allows you, you know, somebody once told me, I think it was C.S. Lewis or somebody, I forget who it was, that said that true humility is seeing things exactly the way they really are. 
uh-huh. including yourself. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's, that's, a, you know, a huge, deep statement to make. No novice. Yes. No, not a novice. It's not a novice statement to make. No, no, no in Latin, non nobis. Oh, not non me, nobis. Not yes, me. yes, I see. Yes, yes, yes exactly. Mm. So I think it has a good effect. It can have a good effect on the heart because it also opens you up to the reality that no amount of formal education is going to make you an expert, that we're all children, you know, just sort of learning. Yeah, the more I know, the less... Uh, the the I, more I know. I know, the less I know, you know, precisely. And uh, and the heart is the connector that makes absolutely. us look at yourself as a unity. Yes, absolutely. And not a separate... Uh, absolutely, absolutely. We've trained ourselves in our educational system, so to speak, to neglect wisdom, to, to neglect... Humility in that sense. And, uh, you know, we're seeing, again, we're seeing the effects in our culture. Mm. Everybody's out for themselves. We've, we've created a culture of narcissistic, consumerist psychopaths. Poor Donald Trump. So it's not his fault. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, if he didn't exist, history would have to invent him to <laughs> paraphrase the Marxists. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Oh, my, yeah. Well, that says a mouthful right there. I mean, here's the guy that made his money off of casinos. So, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That reminds me. I have to ask you about casinos, but I'll not do it today <laughs> because we have to wrap this up, unfortunately. Uh, I'll just say one thing, though, that some people listening may say, oh, yeah, so duality is bad. So uh, Pythagorean said that number two was evil. So you say that it, it doesn't exist in nature. Uh, well, what about, you know, like night and day, you know, the black and white people, right? Well, no, sure, I, yeah. I, no, but I'd say, I'd say that, no, they were right, the ancients, because uh, you have day and night, but you also have evening and morning. Yep. Every duality is actually four, and four comes after three. If you look at the yin-yang, you have four th- there too. You have the uh, little in the big, and you have the other little in the big with reversed colors. Again, you have four. Mm-hmm. So, so two doesn't exist in nature. It is an illusion. There are no duality. The polarity is an illusion. If you have two, you always have four if you look for the shades. Yeah. And so zero, one, three, four. And as we know, if we have four, we have ten. Then we have all the numbers. <laughs> That's a tetractus. Uh, yeah, the tetractus. Yeah. 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 So uh, anyway, we have to wrap this up. Now, I'll, I'll just ask you about uh, your books. Uh, by the way, interesting that you have this synchronicity that right before we're taking on, because we've planned a long time ago to uh, move on to, you know, to vary with other topics with you. So we planned this philosophical discussion mm-hmm. back in November. Mm-hmm. And now you say that you've had this discussion on your site recently. Oh, many times. Oh, yeah, many times. Um, oh, many times. Oh, okay. oh yeah, many, right. many times. Uh, I'd say the vid chats on the website in the members area going back uh, at least a couple of years Mm. Uh, are talking a great deal about these types of topics. Um, artificial intelligence, the metaphor, good and evil, free choice, yeah. conscious intention in the material world. Uh, we, we have some pretty far ranging philosophical discussions. And yeah, they pick it up in your books, of course. Uh, oh, which, yeah. which books would you say that, uh, 
somehow go into depth about these concepts? Um, actually, it begins, I first tossed out the, the topological metaphor in the third Giza Death Star book, Giza Death Star Destroyed, right. in the appendix to chapter 9. I briefly mentioned it in the previous Giza Death Star book. So I introduced the idea very, very early on. In the ancient series. Yeah. yeah. Um, then I pick it up again in The Philosopher's Stone, which is a crucial book in, in the, for for elaboration of the metaphor and then pick it up again in a very deliberate fashion in grid of the gods mm. but it's present if you if you start looking for it it's present in all of the books in some form or fashion but wouldn't you say that the Yahweh book also goes into depth about this oh yeah the the yahweh book does um Yahweh, the two-faced Gosh, god, it's called. The yeah. two-faced god goes into it. Um, the Both the, the books you've collaborated with, uh, Dr. Scott. Uh, DeHart, yes. Yeah. DeHart. He and I have talked about this for many, many years in, in one form or fashion. Uh, the transhumanism book goes into it. Uh, if we if we get him on, I'll ask him about it too, because he too is educated. Uh, oh, yes, like, very much so. You, same as you. Um Let's see, what other books talk about it? I'm, I'm missing one. Um, it's in Babylon's Banksters. Secrets of the Secrets. Unified. It is in a certain kind of uh, weird way in Secrets of the Unified Field. Like I say, it's in all of them, yeah. but deliberately so in, in the books I've mentioned. Um, yeah, more overtly. Yeah. It is certainly present in, in Thrice Great Hermetica in the Janus Age. Right. Um, I just began on that. So Yeah, it's, it's present there, and it's present in two ways there. Uh, it's present in the musical analysis I did. I had one guy write me that he you know, did his degree in music theory, and he simply couldn't understand what I was getting at. Well, again, you know, I can't help it because I'm I'm not doing conventional music theory with this type of analysis. So. No, but but uh, still, he he should he had a better ability to understand it than right. people who aren't musicians. Hey, hey, dude, if you're listening, uh, look up the books of Jocelyn Goodwin. Okay, that will help you. Yeah, very deeply go into this. Yeah. But again, I stand by the analysis I did because. Um, we have to remember that the those musicians were in that very deeply steeped hermetic alchemical culture. This is the way they thought, and I think conventional musical theoretical analysis leaves these types of considerations out of. The well, many of them were actually alchemists and astrologers yeah. and, and, and yeah. magicians and stuff like that. Yeah, the metaphor, the metaphor, I tell people all the time, this is what I use very deliberately and intentionally to write my books and to structure them in a way that they can be read alone, but they can also be read as part of that big, huge, overarching series where you can see how the books plug into each other. Yeah. Speaking of that, what about uh, the new one? Uh, ah. I'm not talking about the educational one. We covered that, but uh, I know you're publicist uh, publisher were very early on so what's it called it is called <coughs> pardon me it's called hidden finance rogue networks and secret sorcery wow subtitle is 911 the fascist wow. international and hidden systems of finance um, that huh. book 
that book is like the third way. I had to write the third way before I wrote this book. So in other words, this book is not accidental in the series. But it sounds to me that it's tying together several different venues. Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. Um, At least we will have the the Nazi series and the economical series uh, come together there. Oh yeah, they're, the they're coming. They're coming together. Um, crescendo, a literally yeah, crescendo. It's a, it's a crescendo, <laughs> and, and there's quite a few things. I, I've warned people that this may be my most mediocre book. But there's a few things in it really? that are still going to hit people right between the eyes, I think. Uh, and you, you wrote it in, what, a month? I wrote it in a month and a half, literally, wow. because I found out from people on my website that <clears throat> get the publisher's catalog. <clears throat> I had asked, pardon me, I had asked him not to put the book up hmm. for sale until it was actually in his hands. So it didn't appear on Amazon, but it did appear in his catalog. <laughs> so I start getting all these emails from people saying, oh, did you know your new book is in David's catalog? I said, what? Of course. We, we are keeping an eye out. <laughs> yeah. So I, I said, well, did he say when the book would be out? Oh, yeah, it's supposed to be out in April. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't written yet. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I hadn't even started writing. I was still reading and researching. I thought, oh, my God. Yeah. So I had to literally just sort of, you know, that's why I was delaying being back on with you. <coughs> yeah, you, you, you were nowhere to be found. You weren't even online. No, I, I, I was literally in my other office day and night. <laughs> trying to finish reading and writing this thing in, in a whirl. I, I got to tell you, it was a whirlwind of writing. It was so bad, Al. I haven't even, <laughs> even cleaned, for you. I, I haven't even cleaned my house yet from the disaster <laughs> of having to write this book in a month and a half. Hmm. I mean, I've got, I've got a mound of dirty clothes to wash. I've, I, I've got, it looks like Einstein's lab in there. Yeah, it's, it? it's, 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 it's a disaster. <laughs> The mad professor. But I finally got it out to him a couple of weeks ago, and um, and okay. I've, I've just decided, you know, that's it for this year, folks. You've got two books coming out this year. I'm spending the rest of the year doing my website stuff and reading uh, all the stuff I want to read for the books I've got planned and maybe writing some more music. and Good for you. Just yes. kind of taking it easy for a change. Yes. <laughs> yes, was, give yourself that Sabbath. Yeah, yes. that that was that was just the, you know, it was like, oh, my God, why did he do this to me? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's a, it's a blessing in disguise. Because uh, uh, it is. <laughs> yeah, because people may think people may think no, no. Let's press pressure him, squeeze him to do, produce more. But I venture that before any creation call, uh, is incubation. Oh yeah. So you you right. So you need to you need to be able now to to enjoy a little for your well, health this, this for your. Book, yeah, this book has been an incubation period for a number of years, and. Right. Uh, but you know, I, I didn't plan on on writing it like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's impressive. No, it's impressive. Well, I hope so. I, I have to warn people. You know, when you read this thing, please realize that Joseph was writing it half the time when he was falling asleep. <laughs> you know, so. Again, a blessing in disguise because then the high, your higher self can express itself better. Your, your well, maybe your I don't know. Mind. <laughs> <laughs> or it may be like like you slackers who think that when they're high they're making better music just because they distort the perception. Oh, maybe I don't know. Speaking but, of music, uh, we have also to say as a final thought. Actually, 
people probably did it, knew it already, but I, I discovered recently when I was going to update your, uh-huh. uh, we, we, we have a, a little bibliography for all our guests. So I was going to update right. it and I discovered that, damn, you've written books about music too. Well, I've written some music. I haven't written books about music. The only thing I've written. Oh, is it notes? What is it? It is in book format. You can buy some music. Oh, yeah. Stuff. You can, but you can buy a, you can buy, I think, three of, three movements from three different concertos, uh, that I composed. Uh, I've got the, uh, I've got the actual musical performance up on YouTube. They're locked right. privately, but I think they're up in the members area of my website. So the, these are compositions you've made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you written about uh, Bach too, I think, or I wrote about uh, Johann Sebastian and Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. I, I analyzed two different pieces of music in Thrice Great Hermetica just to right. try and show people how you can apply this idea of, of topological combinatorial derivatives. Uh, like, like Atlanta Fugians. Yeah. Uh, that's actually, uh, I have the recording. Mm-hmm. That's actually a play by Michael the Alchemist. He wanted to express it both alchemical and in music. So he composed right. uh, pr- uh, something called Atlanta Fugians. And right. uh, that's actually, you can actually buy that. Now, the reason I want to plug these things here now with you today is that this topic is so small, you know. So I think that the niche audience that has managed to uh, endure this debate, not just <laughs> not just because it's deep, but also because of all all over the place, uh, more un- unstructured. You, you're the structure, and I'm the wild card, right? So, I mean, they are so refined that I think their music taste will probably also be a little refined. Well, so they may be interested in listening to knowing that you you compose and listening to it. Yeah, I've been trying to. I I, I composed back in the 1990s. Um, seven concertos for for string orchestra and harpsichord from c minor d major e minor f major g minor a major b minor Mm -hmm. and i've been trying to get the scores into this computer program and get them up and available but i gotta tell you that these these note notation software programs take so horribly long because you have to peck in each and at Every last little note. It's a damn duality. That's the reason. Yeah, it is. And it's, it is. And, and it's. They can't fathom great music like that. No, and, and you have to, you have to tell the computer how to perform it, which in many cases, oh. the, the notation software hasn't caught up with what is actually done in music. So there's right. certain things that the software won't do that I would, you know, open stopping on violins and so on and so forth. And, and but, but what's the point of feeding your computer with this? Well, it, it, it's the only way I can hear it or make it available for people to hear. You know, I don't have, I don't have an orchestra or harpsichord at, at my disposal. But, oh, right, uh, right, that's, right. that's the only way I can do it. And it takes just an enormous, I can't even begin to tell you how long. But if you, by some miracle, would get a proper instrument, would you then uh, prefer to to record well, yeah, it obviously, acoustically? But the, but the pro, yeah, but the problem there is, I'd have to have you know an orchestra. Uh, I I write for a rather large harpsichord, uh, four choirs at least, and and those are hard to come by and very expensive. You know, I obviously can't afford any, but. Um, Sure, I, I would rather do that. But the other problem is I haven't played a keyboard 
in almost 20 years, I probably couldn't play chopsticks now. Um, <laughs> it's it's oh. not that bad. Really? But because the keys at the keyboard, uh, the computer keyboard, uh, simulate the piano keys, I know from the music software I played around Yeah, with. They, they are very, yeah. very similar, but it's I'd have to practice. And, and you can get the virtual uh, tangents, of course. Obviously, well, so. the problem the problem also with these notation software things, you know, I'm I play harpsichord and pipe organ, and they basically give you one setting for each instrument. And, of yeah. course, that doesn't allow you to, to display the full range of, of what a harpsichord or a pipe organ are really capable of. Yeah, what, one of our other favorite uh, guests, uh, we're going to have him on a lot. He's an organist. He, he told me that his ability to perceive codes and crack codes oh, yeah. uh, has probably to do with his training as an or organist. Yes, absolutely. You, you immediately understand, uh, of course. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. When you look at some of the scores of, of Johann Sebastian Bach, for example, uh, the B minor mass, for example, you find all sorts of codes right in the score that if you really stop and look at them, are rather intriguing. Um, the Et Incarnatus, for example, from, from the B minor mass, is written in 3-2 time. Mm. Well, why 3-2? Well, the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity becoming incarnate, you know, two natures of Christ, and on and on we go. Uh, he paints his texts in a very interesting way. When they're singing the part of the creed, uh, Ascendit in Cello, the music actually goes up, you know, it ascends, mm. uh, sitting at the right hand of the Father. The music sits down. He paints his text. There's little touches that. Wow. And then, you know. So, so, so several ways to express these principles. Oh, yes, absolutely. Several layers. Uh, uh, layer upon layer upon layer. Yeah, you know, yeah. he was. He was fond of writing uh, his name into the music because in German, of course, the. The note ha for H is actually the note B natural, and then B is is actually B. So you can actually spell wow. out the name Bach in notes, and he does this all the time. So this is precisely what Francis Bacon and a few others did with uh, yes, yeah, uh, exactly. Only yeah, they did exactly. it. They did it geometrically. He does yes. it. Wow. Yeah, exactly. You Again, know, the parallels we're talking about music versus geometry, etc. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 You, you know, he, you find the original backmasking master. This wasn't invented by rock music. You know, they were doing it in the Baroque era all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it, it's intellectual fun. If you can train your mind to listen to these patterns and, oh, that's. No, 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 no. Even a plant yeah, realizes plant, this. Yeah. It's proven. <laughs> you don't yeah, need even, a mind. Yeah, I know. Even a plant, <laughs> yes. But that's the they problem. They prefer this music. <laughs> that, that's, yeah, I know, but that's the problem. You know, we, plants understand it better than most modern humans. <laughs> what does that say about us? <laughs> that, well, that's the problem here, you know. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I know exactly what that, that organist is talking about because my organ teacher back in high school had me doing the same thing. The first thing he would do is plop a score up on, on the stand and, just have me start analyzing it before I even put the fingers to the keyboard. You know, wow. is this is this a feminine fugue? Is it a masculine fugue? Mm. You know, uh, yeah. Know the tune before you play with it. Yeah, play know, know with the it. tune yeah. before you play with it. Be able to look at the score and hear it in your head. Mm. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach said that people that compose at the keyboard are puddling. <laughs> you know, mm. he, he mm. should be able just to hear it off the score paper. Mm. So it's it's music is I think so important to to any really humane education and art as well, literature, poetry, and so on. Um, yeah. 
What was it uh, Blake said? It it was the remnants of paradise that the flood didn't wash away, something like yeah, that. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, uh, you know, it's it's that ability to craft words or to craft a painting or a sculpture that uh, shows your intelligence and, and your craft. Keeps us alive. Yeah, it's not paint by numbers, you know. No. <laughs> no, not like the American educational system. No, though. I was no. saying precisely. <laughs> you went there. <laughs> yeah, and with that uh, snake uh, biting its tail, <laughs> I, I, I'll give this teaser before we close. I'll ask... Joseph, another question when we uh, are done here that I will release on the sponsor section. And it dovetails with what we talked about. It's about culture. Let's do that when we are finished here. So, yeah, I think this covers it. All right. Well, thank you for having me back on. So many thanks to you for giving us your time. Very enlightening. Oh, more than welcome. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening to our show today. In it, we referred to a pre-discussion that was recorded separately regarding education, which will be released as a separate program. As for our post-discussion, you'll find that at our website, and if you are a sponsor, you can access it anytime. If not, you will have to wait until it will be published together with other backstage stuff. To become a sponsor, all you have to do is donate a dollar or more through our PayPal link. And you don't need to have a PayPal account yourself to use our donation link. And that will give you permanent access. We do appreciate regular donation and we are dependent upon it, but it's not a requisite. If you think we are worthy of your support, spread our shows to your network and online, because the more listeners we get, the more viable our program is, and the more shows we can produce with increasing quality. Before leaving you tonight, I want to read an excerpt from the ancient words of wisdom referred to in the show, that's called Cosmogenesis, which relates to today's talk. Cosmos has no beginning and no end. All that exists in space-time is a condition of eternity. But beyond this, the Almighty One, Arche, dwelled in sleep before awakening. The eternal parent was wrapped in the sleep of the cosmic night. Light there was not, for the flame of spirit was not yet rekindled. Time there was not, for change had not re-begun. Things there were not, for form had not represented itself. Action there was not, for there was no things to act. The pairs of opposites there were not, for there were no things to manifest polarity. The eternal parent, causeless, indivisible, changeless, infinite, rested in unconscious, dreamless sleep. Other than the eternal parent, there was naught, either real or apparent. Before the beginning, from one single nothing, appeared the only all we may call Noah's.
the only one central fire and universal mind, the one mirrored itself, and thus self-recognition brought forth plurality. That's it for today. Sincere greetings from your host Al and the Borealis team. Be seeing you. Number one.